This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, i got to warn you, this is going to be an exciting show. Um, it's not exciting for reasons that I can tell you about what's going to happen. It is exciting for precisely the opposite of that. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll be honest. I have no idea where we are heading for the next four hours. This is one of those shows where we are going to be all over the place, where and we have three good guests or three good interview segments that I'll tell you about coming up in a second. Uh, I don't know where those are going. I don't know where the individual interviews are going. Normally, I can kind of predict it. Uh, I don't know where the non-interview segments are going. And uh, we're going to bring back in the 4 o'clock segment by popular demand a a segment that we have not done in quite some time where we give you an opportunity to tell a joke. So you got three hours from now to come up with your best comedy material. But it's one of those days where for the next four hours, the only thing that's predictable is unpredictability. So this is one of those shows where if you think of going to sleep, don't do it. If you know someone in your household that's asleep, wake them up. In fact, even if you don't have the best relationship with your neighbors, you may even want to knock on your neighbor's door and wake them up to make sure they're listening because this is going to be one for the books. Now, it is May 5th. May 5th, of course, is Cinco de Mayo. Uh, Cinco de Mayo, a big day here in our kitchen. We have sombreros out. We have Mexican um, paraphernalia out. And apparently there's going to be a big feast here this afternoon which I'm hoping to enjoy some leftover uh, leftovers of when we get in here tomorrow. Uh, Matt Blaze on Cinco de Mayo, we celebrate what exactly? Mexican heritage. Well, why do we celebrate it on Cinco de Mayo? Uh, the revolution of Mexico. Uh, not really. No, I mean that was not that was not the <laughs> worst answer. That was not the worst answer that I've heard, but it was far from the best. So, no. everybody thinks that Cinco de Mayo is essentially uh, Mexican Independence Day. It is not. It is not Mexican Independence Day. So, what is it? Cinco de Mayo commemorates the anniversary of Mexico's victory over the French at the Battle of Puebla in 1862. Um, led by General Zaragoza, uh, the victory of a smaller, poorly equipped Mexican force against the larger and better armed French army was a morale boost for the Mexicans. Unfortunately, Zaragoza died months after the battle from an illness and a larger French force ultimately defeated 
the Mexican army at the Second Battle of Puebla and occupied Mexico City. So their victory was short-lived. But it is interesting. Whenever you see the Cinco de Mayo celebrations on television or in the hallways here or in Mexican restaurants, you don't really see, like you do for Independence Day, big old portraits of, you know, we have General Washington and uh, Revolutionary War heroes. Nobody's ever got a picture of General Zaragoza. I couldn't tell you what General Zaragoza looks like without looking him up online. I think, you know, if you're going to celebrate Cinco de Mayo today, throw up a picture of uh, General Zaragoza. At the very least, they should make him the Google Doodle, right? Am I right? Now, um, what's interesting about Cinco de Mayo, now, as Matt Play said, it has sort of a celebration of Mexican heritage, but it is a much bigger holiday in the United States than it is in Mexico. In Mexico, except in, as I understand, one key region, they really don't even observe Cinco de Mayo. That's not their big day, their big patriotic day, or their big day of history. In the United States, it is big. Now, they have been celebrating this for over 100 years in the United States, but it really gained, I mean, what's the first time that you remember celebrating Cinco de Mayo? You didn't celebrate it in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, did you? Be honest. It really gained popularity beyond those of Mexican heritage, especially in the 1980s. Why? And this is a a, a perfect example of how advertising and how media messaging influences other events. In the 1980s, there were advertising campaigns by beer, wine, and tequila companies all making a big deal about Cinco de Mayo. Today, in the year 2022, Cinco de Mayo generates beer sales that are on par with the Super Bowl. So that investment 40 years ago by these beer companies has paid off. So in Mexico, the commemorate, they don't do this in Mexico. They don't have margaritas and tequila and beer. Uh, The battle continues to be, the commemoration of the Battle of Puebla continues to be mostly ceremonial. Sometimes they'll have a, a battle reenactment or a military parade, and the city of Puebla marks the event with uh, a couple of other festivals and some reenactments of the battle. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of people mistake uh, Cinco de Mayo for Mexican Independent Day, Independence Day, which is the most important national holiday in Mexico, which is celebrated on September 16th. You know, it's interesting. We don't do anything on September 16th. We don't even have a two-for-one quesadilla night. And I realize it's not quesadilla, but uh, for those of us that have seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, that's the way we say it. So um, that's the history behind Cinco de Mayo and why it is so big in the United States, but not necessarily that big in Mexico. I'll tell you, though, I don't have a problem. I mean, who cares if I have a problem with anything? But I don't have a problem with people celebrating it. At all. You know, I have the older I've gotten, the more I've become a bit more like John Katsimatidis, who celebrates every single holiday. That's what I'm doing now. I'm celebrating every single holiday, especially the holidays that involve tequila. So I say uh, if you're into Cinco de Mayo, whatever your heritage, I can't think of a better way to uh, celebrate 
all things having to do with Mexico. And I'm sure a lot of people will be going out for Mexican food today. I'm certainly hoping there's going to be some Mexican food here in the kitchen. I'm told that's the plan. We're having a big uh, Cinco de Mayo day day of celebration here on the radio station. And uh, I am I like Mexican food a great deal. Uh, I, uh, you know, give me a good soft shell taco. Love it. A quesadilla, fajita, all about it. I used to there was a place that I used to go to that used to have a lobster quesadilla out of this world. I don't know if they're actually eating lobster quesadillas in Mexico, but it happens to be absolutely terrific. Uh, So if you're celebrating Cinco de Mayo today, I say more power to you. Now, in terms of um, the rest of the show, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Elliot Gordon. Elliot Gordon is an interesting guy, as I was just telling uh, uh, Dominic Carter. He's an entrepreneur, a former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer, a talent agent. And he is doing something uh, that I just love. He is working to bring comedy and laughter to senior homes and to assisted living facilities. And one of the things that I've become increasingly concerned with in during the pandemic and elsewhere has been this epidemic of loneliness that's going on in our country and the related uh, epidemic of depression. So if this alleviates the loneliness that some seniors might be feeling, I'm all for this. So I'm going to talk with Elliot Gordon in uh, just a minute. I'm very much looking forward to that. And then in the 2 o'clock hour, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I started telling you about this yesterday. We have... um, you know, I've had a lot of people – I've had a lot of diverse views on Russia on this show. Uh, we've spoken with people who are a bit more hawkish when it comes to Russia, folks like Wesley Clark and Harlan Ullman and others, and folks that are a bit more dovish and some who uh, have been called by some of you Putin apologists. Now, that's been a concerted effort on my part because I've sought to – put forward a different narrative than what you're hearing in 80% of the media. And when I've had those folks on, even though many of you have criticized me for that, I have always tried to ask them the most challenging questions that I can when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to listen to an interview that I've done with one of these, and this is your description, some of you anyway, not mine, uh, Putin apologists, and tell me a question that wasn't asked. Of them. So so what we're going to do in the two o'clock hour is something a bit different. Michael Averco is going to be here. He's a commentator, uh, foreign policy analyst. He's been on the show a few times before, and he supports a diplomatic end to this Russia-Ukraine crisis. He supports a more dove, I'll call it, a, I realize this is an oversimplification, but a more dovish approach when it comes to Russia. Now, um, he's going to be joined for the hour by a fella that is hosting one of my favorite podcasts these days, Richard Bay, who supports a more aggressive stance when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. And I'm hesitant to call it a debate, even though both people, I think, have very different views about where we are in this situation. But we are going to have a discussion about the future of this Russia-Ukraine situation. And where we go 
from here. I'm looking forward to that. It is Thursday, so we're going to do the AC report at uh, 3.30 with my friend David Pena. He has Boogie Nights down there in Atlantic City. They're celebrating their 10-year anniversary. And look, it's been a tough 10 years to be in Atlantic City. So we're going to talk about the peaks and valleys in Atlantic City and for the, you know, just the bar business and the nightclub business in general. And uh, I think I'm, you're going to really enjoy that conversation, even if that style of music, which is mostly 1960s music, is uh, not necessarily something you are, um, you know, even if it's not necessarily something that you're into. Meantime, um, I want to talk a little bit about an issue that has gotten a lot of attention. I alluded to it the other day. By the way, if you want to comment on Cinco de Mayo or anything else, you're welcome to do so. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, an issue that has been getting a lot of attention all week has been, and other people have talked about it, so I'm not going to spend too much time about it, Um the issue has been the renaming of the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. Now, it's already got two names, the 59th Street Bridge, the Queensboro Bridge. And um, I, I, I was a great admirer of Ed Koch. I think he, in spite of all his faults, particularly in his third term, I think he's one of the greatest mayors New York City has ever seen. And he is without a doubt, and I say this even as a, I'll call him a friend, a friend and admirer of Rudy Giuliani, without a doubt, the greatest former mayor New York City has ever seen. Because he did something that I don't know that anyone has ever done, is even after he was no longer mayor, he basically was the de facto ambassador of New York to the world. You know, when Snapple wanted to make a, a commercial where they where they uh, 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 made apologies to New York for some comments that they'd made. They went and got Ed Koch. You know, and, and again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, and the story was 30 years ago, but the point is Ed Koch was the guy to do it. If you ever needed a person to represent all things New York, Ed Koch was that person. He was the combination there's a lot of great new york characters out there joe franklin certainly was one curtis lee is one but ed koch was almost the personification of every single new york character combined and i heard dominic carter talking about this a little uh, a little er- uh, you know earlier in the week and he knew ed koch very well because he used to have ed koch on television and i remember when i first started going on television with dominic periodically one of my great thrills was to be able to see ed koch in the studio because uh, his segment would usually be on uh, again i wasn't on that many times maybe four or five times but his segment would be on before mine and i'd get to talk with ed about all sorts of things history international affairs food chinese food and i got to know him a little bit i certainly wouldn't call him a friend but we uh, certainly got along now there's now this effort being led by the jim Oles. LGBT Democratic Club to take Ed Koch's name off the 59th Street Bridge, off the Ed Koch Bridge. I'm so done with discussions about bridge namings and renamings. The you, you know what? Everything must be just fine in the country if we have this amount of time to spend discussing whether or not bridges and tunnels should be renamed. Because I got news for you. 
everything that's named for anybody, you want to talk Governor Kerry, President Washington, President Lincoln, uh, Ed Koch, Mario Cuomo, uh, anything that's named for anybody, there's something in their history that's negative. And so if you want to keep digging, you can dig deep enough to find something to rename that person's bridge or tunnel for or whatever. And I really find this incredibly objectionable. But the push for this name change, as I mentioned, is being led by the Jim Oles LGBT Democratic Club, whose leader, Alan Roscoff, despised Koch for his belated response to the AIDS crisis. And they've asked all these candidates running for office to sign on to this cancel Koch pledge, essentially. And it includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It includes Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. Very disgusting that Carolyn Maloney would allow her name to be used this way because Ed Koch endorsed her and she went on this big laudatory speech about how how uh, Ed Koch was such a great mayor and a wonderful guy. She has no problem uh, being a party to this. Jamani Williams, Hakeem Jeffries, Mark Levine, uh, Grace Meng, Vanessa Gibson. And I, I got to tell you, the person that I find most disappointing that has signed on to this has been Tom DiNapoli. And, and Tom is a friend, and I haven't talked to him about this yet, and I will talk to him about it privately and on the air. But I, I and, you know, Tom listens, so he might be listening right now. He's welcome to call in if he wants. But, um, I find it really reprehensible what these folks are doing. And the interesting thing about Ed Koch is that this this is being led by a gay and lesbian group. And if there's one rumor that dogged Ed Koch for his entire career, his entire life really, it's that he was gay. Now, I don't know if he was gay, and I've heard the varying theories on this front, and to me, it makes no difference. In fact, Ed Koch, before he died, obviously, talked about his sexuality and how people felt about his sexuality. Let me let me uh, talk to you about this. Yeah. My um, reaction was to say it's none of your business. And people who voted for me, some of them thought and think I'm gay. Some of them think I'm not. And most of them don't care. That was exactly my view. Made no difference to me what Ed Koch's sexuality was. I couldn't care less what anybody's sexuality is. And, and you know, I'm amazed how many times people ask me that question. Oh, is so-and-so gay? Is your friend so-and-so gay? I have no idea. I've never slept with him. I can't tell you. Makes no difference to me what his sexuality is or her sexuality. People ask me that about all the time. And, you know, it's funny that that issue of his sexuality was something that dogged him a great deal when he ran for mayor in 1977. And although they've denied it, there were operatives of Mario Cuomo, who was his leading opponent in three elections in 77, the primary, the runoff, and then the general election. And one of his aides at the time, a young man, a teenager named Andrew Cuomo, that they had these signs 
that said, vote for Cuomo, not the, the not the homo. Now, I want to be very clear. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has denied that to this day. And I believe uh, up until the day he died, Mario Cuomo denied it as well. Uh, Ed Koch talked about this when he did an interview with the New York Times following his, um, you know, it was sort of a, they d- did this in anticipation of help with an obituary. This is what he said about what the Cuomos did in 1977 and how that um, led to his view of him to this day. They put up uh, signs on Queens Boulevard. It was the whole boulevard. It was shocking. Now, how do you deal with something like that? Well, I'll tell you how I dealt with it. It is shocking. I called Mario a weekend or two before the election. And I said, Mario, this is happening. Oh, I really? I mean, he, uh, I, he doesn't know about it. I said, Mario, you got to do something about that. It's not right. I'll try. I'll do. I don't believe he did anything. Now, that matter has affected our relationship from uh, 77 through this year. Uh, we get along, and we got along as mayor and governor, but I always uh, held it uh, against him. I also held it against uh, his son, uh, Andy Cuomo. Even though uh, social relationships, when we meet in public, are good, underneath, he knows, I know what I'm really thinking. You (laughs) Now, that was, I think that was taped, that uh, interview that I just played for you with the Times, around 2010. I interviewed Koch uh, many times before he died. I think one of the last interviews that I did with him was around 2012 maybe 2013, early 2013. But I spoke to him about this because he and Mario and he and Andrew had patched things up. And this is one of the many reasons that I admire Ed Koch more than so many people in life. Um, He was able to essentially forgive the Cuomos for this. Listen to my discussion with him on this front. You mentioned uh, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, you, you had some legendary battles with his father, Mario, over the years, running against him for both mayor and governor. Uh, right. well, how's Andrew doing? Uh, Andrew's doing superbly. What uh, Mario, and we are good friends uh, now, his father said, only in uh, New York could you have a governor, that's what he ultimately became, who wanted to be mayor and a mayor <laughs> to be who wanted to be governor. How were you guys able to patch up your relationship after all those years? I mean, you had some pretty heated uh, oh, yes. words in those yes. two contests. H- how did that come to be that you're such good friends now? Well, I would say the first thing uh, is that we weren't such good friends for a number of years. I think, uh, as Mario said on a number of occasions, I think I like Ed better than he likes me. And then he went on to say, and you know, I said that once when Ed was there, and Ed said, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But that's changed. I have a great respect and admiration for both Mario and Andrew. And and I will tell you how it came back. I'm in my 87th year, and I said to myself a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I don't remember exactly when, I said to myself, what's the sense in my holding grudges? It doesn't make any sense. It, it, it eliminates 
energy. It takes energy that prevents you from doing other things, and there's no reason for it. So I, I decided that a whole host of cases where I thought I had been unfairly treated or injured in some way, uh, I just said, no more. We're friends. <laughs> and that's the true and it's the honest-to-God truth. Uh, and I only wish Andrew uh, well. I think he's done a spectacular job as uh, governor. Nobody thought he could accomplish all the things that he accomplished in his uh, first year, and he did. So now back to the issue of bridge renaming, which, again, I happen to be, um, you know, I was very sympathetic to the arguments brought up by people like Peter Vallone Jr., who said, look, you already have a bridge with two names. It's named for a borough. It really doesn't make sense to rename it. I was kind of sympathetic. But now that it's been the Ed Koch Bridge for a few years, I think it's such a tremendous slap in the face to take his name off of it, given his contributions to New York City. Now, is it the biggest deal in the world? No. But I think it says a lot about the people that obsess over issues like this. Mike Bloomberg, who was mayor at the time and who Koch was a big supporter of and vice versa, he talked about the bridge renaming at the time. And just as he pulled our city back from the edge of collapse, you should know that Mayor Koch literally saved the Queensboro Bridge from near collapse and began the process of reinvesting in then crumbling bridges across the city. And Ed Koch talked about getting this bridge renamed for him. It's in my district. It's a workhorse bridge. It's a uh, bridge that everybody loves. It doesn't have the inspiring heights of the George Washington Bridge. It's better than the George Washington (laughs) Bridge because it works. Now, you should know, though, Ed did not seek to get that bridge renamed. It was not as if he was politicking behind the scenes and lobbying public support. No, nothing like that. In fact, just the opposite. He, whenever asked about it, would always demure and say, if it happens, great. If not, fine. In fact, here's an interview that he did um, right around this time with Jeffrey Lichtman on uh, WNYM at the time, in which Lichtman asked him about the renaming of the bridge and the opposition to the renaming of the Queensboro Bridge at the time. What's the deal with the Queensboro Bridge, uh, the 59th Street Bridge? Why isn't that being renamed for you? Why is there opposition at all? You were a great mayor for the city. That's that's, that's a silly uh, comment, even though it's laudatory of me. I'm not lobbying the mayor. I know you're not lobbying. The mayor proposed uh, that the Queensboro Bridge be named the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge, and it's before the city council. Whatever they do is fine with me. I'm not lobbying. If they name it for me, it'll be one of my greatest uh, privileges and honors to uh, receive it. Uh, if they don't, I'll, uh, my life will go on anyway. And uh, it certainly did. Uh, but it went on with the Koch Bridge rename, being renamed. So um, I think Koch was a great mayor for a host of reasons. But among them was, I think, his um, ability to forgive the Cuomos and all of the other enemies that that he had over the years and all the other people that wronged him. It really was uh, such an inspiration to me, honestly, in that conversation. And it's something that I've tried uh, to live by. In fact, you know, um, and I really admire that spirit of forgiveness and not holding grudges. In fact, I had very we've had on this show several times Frank McKay. He's usually on talking about the Long Island serial killer. But 
I've had him on talking about a wide variety of subjects. Frank and I had a, a falling out about politics, which in the grand scheme of things is very silly, a very silly thing to have a falling out with anybody about. And Frank and I did not. Now, Frank and I were super close. He was a mentor of mine, really, from the time that I was 16. And we were super close, worked on a whole bunch of stuff together. And we did not speak for for over a decade over politics. And I really am grateful to Todd Shapiro, who's a publicist and a friend of both of ours, for putting us both together and, um, you know, arranging a dinner for us a couple of years ago. And now we're just as close as uh, as we ever were. In fact, I, I saw him at the Staten Island Ferry Hawks game the other day, yesterday, I guess. And it was really just so wonderful to see him. And it meant so much to me that um, we had been able to patch that up. And I thought, how silly is it that we spent a decade of our lives when we're only on this earth a finite amount of time, not speaking with one another and not enjoying one another's company. In fact, I felt the same way about Bruno San Martino. Um, do we have that Bruno San Martino um, audio uh, in there? No, if we don't, then that's okay. Because Bruno San Martino, he had a, a obviously a legendary wrestling career and had a big falling out with Vince McMahon. And he was able to patch things up with Vince, at least to the point, I don't think they were socializing, but at least to the point where he would come back to Madison Square Garden, agree to be put in the Hall of Fame, and at least give a, a Vince McMahon a, a firm embrace and so forth. So um, that's sort of an aspect of Ed Koch's legacy that I don't think gets talked about at all. And, you know, on this show, I always try to do something different than what everyone else is doing. You might hear other shows. They say, all right, you know, name it. Keep it named for Koch. Don't keep it named for Koch. Koch was a good mayor. Koch was a bad mayor. Koch did this. Koch did that. And all, all that is true, I guess, depending on your point of view. But the one aspect of Koch's legacy that I hadn't heard anybody talk about all week while this story has been in the news has been his ability to set an example of forgiving People who've wronged you. And that's something that I continue to draw a great deal of inspiration from. Elliot Gordon uh, is going to join me next. He is somebody that knows just about every major comedian <laughs> over the course of the last 50 years. He's got some great stories about him and great stories that he shares in something that he's doing that is very special right now and designed to combat loneliness. I'm very much looking forward to talking with Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, producer, talent agent, and former aide to Mayor Giuliani. Straight ahead. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know, if you listen to me, I am quite fond of New York City characters. I don't think uh, there are any characters that are more interesting and more fun than Elliot Gordon. Um, You know, if you read a biography of Elliot Gordon, it's almost like you're reading the biography of five or six different people because you can't believe any one person has led that varied in existence in the course of one lifetime. Uh, But Elliot Gordon certainly has. Uh, It's very difficult to describe Elliot Gordon. He's a producer, a talent agent, a former aide to Mayor Giuliani, an entrepreneur, and uh, a gifted storyteller. And the thing we like most about him, he's kind enough to get up early for us this morning. Good morning, Elliot. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Frank, thank you so much for having me as your guest. And by the way, besides being Cinco de Mayo, it is also Israel Independence Day. So I'm going to send you a falafel to have with your tequila. (laughs) (laughs) I do like falafel. And I appreciate you mentioning that. Now, um, you know, your sending me a falafel would not be your first foray into the breakfast business. I read somewhere that you actually have been the person that invented the breakfast bagel. Come on. How did you invent the breakfast bagel? Well, you know, it's interesting that you really you really did your homework and your research. Yeah, most of those bagels we're talking about many, many years ago, most of those bagels are running about four ounces. So I said, you know something, if I make a five-ounce bagel, when they hit that with cream cheese and a coffee, that's breakfast, which is probably the way Ed Koch started every morning. <laughs> so I said, you know what, I'm going to make five ounces. Before I know it, I put it on trucks, and I was delivering it to restaurants, and I had it up to 10,000 bagels a week. So I built that bread route, and then I sold it, but I had come up with the name at that time at a breakfast bagel. Wow, that's that that is wild. You know, it's interesting when we think about you and uh, what you've done in public life and what we what you've done in comedy, which we'll talk about in a minute and what you're doing right now. uh, A lot of people don't know that you actually uh, played a pretty significant role in the Camp David Accords um, and your work with uh, Leon Charney um, and your relationship with Leon Charney led to, um, you know, an interesting collaboration with the two of you. How did you get to know Leon Charney initially? Well, well, Frank, I want to make one correction. I I was not involved with the uh, Camp David Accords. Leon was. And what happened was how I found out the whole story. And most people don't know Jackie Mason was. But what happened was when I was working for uh, Mayor Giuliani, Leon Charney was very involved with politics. And I would meet him at the functions. Mm. He became a very wealthy uh, real estate man. And I think he had like a million square feet just in Times Square. So I met him at the uh, different events that I was attending with Mayor Giuliani. And Leon said, hey, El, I've got a TV show and I buy time because in 1997, you had to buy time in different markets to get your show aired. Uh, And he said, it's all about politics in Israel, and you seem to know all the players of politics. He said, would you like to produce my show? Mm. And I did. I was with him 
for about three years and produced about 200 shows, but I became close with Leon personally, and he shared the story. I said, Leon, how'd that whole thing come about? And just to uh, revise it very quickly, he said, Al, at the time I was a very successful attorney, and there was a comedian from the Catskills, not a big name, a guy named Lee Tully, and he came to Leon and he said, there's another comedian who went on the Ed Sullivan show and did his jokes, can he sue him? And Leon won a lawsuit. He said that the Sullivan show had such a big audience doing jokes on it, registered a common law copyright, which Lee Tully did, and that meant no other comedian had a right to that intellectual property, and he won a lawsuit for a comedian wow. having his joke stolen. Wow. You know, so now, not, now, not long after that, Jackie goes on the Smothers Brothers, and which was another variety show around that time, and they edit his jokes about the Vietnam War, and Jackie Mason goes nuts. He couldn't believe that they actually cut up his material, and he goes to Leon. Leon files a lawsuit, and it works out there's a senator from Indiana named Vance Harkey, very big on First Amendment issues. So it was in the paper because it was Jackie Mason. Vance Harkey sees it. He gets involved, and they had an out-of-court settlement, but it brought Vance Harkey in touch with Leon Charney. He introduces him to a guy named Bob Lipschitz, who's the biggest attorney in Atlanta, representing the governor, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter gets elected president. Lipschitz goes with him to Washington as the president's personal attorney, similar to Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. And then Leon is representing a guy named Ezra Weitzman for a book deal. And Ezra calls him and says, Begin just became elected prime minister. He brought me in as defense minister, and we want you to come to Jerusalem to meet with us. So Leon goes out there. They say, hey, you got a connection indirectly to Prime Minister Begin through him, through Weitzman. You got a connection to President Carter through Lipschitz. Nobody knows who you are. You're perfect. We want you to fly back and forth as the shuttle diplomat. And that's how Leon played his role in Camp David. Now, I, I alluded to your history in New York food delivery. I know you sold everything from Italian ices to bagels to, uh, to you know, to hot dogs. How did you make that transition from having a big food del- distribution and delivery route to working in the Giuliani administration? How did that transition take place? There was a nice gentleman. His name was Rabbi Lenny Gutman, and he was friends of mine. And he said, this is 91. He said, Al, he said, uh, Rudy lost in 89, but we're going to go again for it uh, in 93. And we're going to need help in certain areas, areas where you have good contacts. And he brought me in. And there was a gentleman, Dove Hyken, who helped us and a fine gentleman named Bruce Teitelbaum. And we all kind of like formed an office, just concentrating our efforts on the Jewish community, because with the Crown Heights riots, we felt that was the area where we could move those Dinkin voters into the Giuliani column. And that was the role I played. And we wound up winning the election. And like I said, I stayed on and worked as an aide to the first deputy mayor, Peter Powers. 
And then once I met Leon, I said, hey, why not go into television? Yeah. So um, uh, if people just we're talking with Elliot Gordon, uh, if, if people have followed the history of New York politics, usually a lot of people that are senior aides for a two term mayor, they will uh, do maybe lobbying. Maybe they'll run for office themselves. Maybe they'll go into consulting. Maybe they'll go into punditry. You don't necessarily think of becoming a talent agent as the first career for somebody that leaves a mayoral administration. What made you choose to focus on that talent and uh, talent management and entertainment and comedy rather than go the traditional route of so many other Giuliani alumni, for instance? I had a very dear friend who was a very special man named Sid Bernstein. And Sid Bernstein had been the great music promoter of the 1960s. He was the man who brought the Beatles to America. He was manager for Cousin Brucey, another dear friend, Cousin Bruce Morrow. And I think Sid was involved with every major star of that era, Frank Sinatra, um, uh, Jerry Lewis, everybody. And uh, Sid and I were very close, and I really caught the entertainment bug from Sid Bernstein. And I found that I have an incredible teacher, a guy who's done it all from small shows to Shea Stadium, to teach me how to become an agent, to teach me the area of promotion, of dealing with an artist. And I really caught the bug. And through Sid Bernstein is how I met some guy named Jackie Mason, which we have been friends for 20 years. And then I'm meeting Pat Cooper and Alan King and Tom Dreesen. And these guys said, hey, if you pick up the phone and you get us a job, you got 10% for your pocket. And some of these guys were getting big money and I got them jobs and I was picking up big commissions. So that's what took me in that direction, that I had the opportunity and the teachers like Sid Bernstein and like Jackie Mason to teach me how to do it. And I just love the fact of earning money by making people feel good. And it became an addiction and I just kept doing it. And like I said, I wound up with these long-term relationships with Pat Cooper and Tommy Dreesen. And before I knew it, I, I was getting jobs for Robert Klein and occasionally some work, Alan King and Henny Youngman and Red Buttons, the old timers. And I found that the biggest treat was having them share their stories of their lives' events with me, of coming up through the Catskills and what they went through. And I didn't realize it at the time, Frank, but I was becoming almost an encyclopedia of an era of entertainment that may have been the most funniest and the most elegant in the history of the entertainment business. And I just kept going. Well, so uh, you've had you've represented a lot of interesting folks over the years, including uh, a few folks that uh, that I've known and you've worked with uh, and some legendary folks, uh, people like Carol Channing, people like uh, Joe Frazier. And, you know, the, the fellow that I was just talking about a few minutes ago, Ed Koch, you you represented him. Yes. What happened was Lee, I represented for speaking engagements when I was doing the Leon Charney report. Leon knew Ed very, very well. Leon was heavily involved as a fund, you know, giving money to Democratic candidates. And Ed would come on the show. And then I just asked him, I said, hey, Ed, you know, 
I, I think I could get you some speaking engagements. Will you allow me to do that? And he said, sure, why not? So in that sense, I represented Ed, getting him a couple of speaking engagements. And again, we became friends. And Ed Koch, to me, was like another entertainer. He was a very funny, charismatic guy. And it was, it was an honor to at least spend a small amount of time representing the former mayor. If, um, you know, a couple of the people that you've worked with over the years, uh, I've known, and they're known for occasionally being a bit temperamental. Uh, people like Jackie yeah. Mason and Pat Cooper come to mind. Uh, now, I know Pat uh, pretty well, and he has a very kind side to him, which doesn't get nearly uh, as much attention as his more irascible side. But uh, g- give me, tell me a, a story or an anecdote of about your relationship with either Jackie Mason or Pat Cooper, because I know every interaction that I've ever had with both of those guys was incredibly memorable, and I'm sure most of yours were as well. Well, I tell Pat, Pat and I know each other a long time, and he is one of the most long, loyal, uh, encouraging, cheerleader type of guys. When you need somebody in your corner, and I call him a marshmallow simmering and hot Italian sauce, (laughs) Pat is just constantly funny. Not long ago when he was living in New York, he's in his 90s, and I visited him at his apartment at that time on the Upper West side i said how do you stay in such good shape he says every morning he goes to central park and takes a run for his life so so he was just constantly funny and you know i got one great story for him i get him a job at a place called ruth eckert hall which is a theater in clearwater florida the tampa area holds about 2200 seats and i tell and he's about 80 years old at the time i say pat it's the winter. You better go down a few days earlier because there could be a snowstorm. No, no, I'm going to go the night before. Don't worry. Things will be fine. Sure enough, the night before, there's a snowstorm in New York. He calls me from the airport. He said he's locked into LaGuardia. And he says, El, he said, if there is one plane that's going to be flying out to Miami and if there is one seat available, I will chain myself to that seat. They'll have to call the cops to get me off the plane. He said it's not because of his money. And I think I got him 12500 for that job. He said, I'm a rich man. He said, but you have a commission coming. How are you going to get your commission if I don't show up and do the job? How is the promoter going to talk to the audience and give back the tickets? He said, it's called being a responsible person, 80 years old flies into Miami, sleeps in the airport to get a connecting flight to Tampa, goes right to the hotel, right to the stage, does 45 fabulous minutes, and then he goes back and and gets some rest at 80 years old. He said, El, it's called being responsible. Wow. Uh, Wow. Talking with... uh... Elliot Gordon. And uh, how about Jackie Mason? Jackie, I've seen even when he would come in and fill in on the radio, he had a side to him that could be, to put it politely, difficult to deal with. Yes. Now, Jack and I, I'll tell you a fascinating story. Jack and I had been friends for over 20 years. We were introduced by Sid Bernstein and Jack, very entrepreneurial. Uh, him and I would come up with ideas for different comedy packages or to do different things together. And, gee, four or five nights a week, I'd get a call from Jackie Mason at midnight because he liked to stay out late. 
And it was always the same thing. He's in a coffee shop with some girl he's not that thrilled with. He wants me to get in a cab to meet him so we could talk about show business. So I'd be with him three, four nights a week. But a very, very special guy. And at times, Frank, you're right, we would get into shouting matches. We would yell. We wouldn't speak for the longest time. Now, three years ago, he calls me and he says, I want you to meet me at this diner later tonight. Let's get together. And I didn't call him back. So he calls me again, very angry. How could you not call me back? I'm a Broadway star. How dare you? Again, a fight. We don't speak for three years. Last July, I'm coming out of the subway in Manhattan on 7th and 57th. And there's a guy at a table outside the restaurant having a cup of coffee, Jackie Mason, our eyes just lock. And he says to me, he said, oh, we've been fighting. And I said, yeah, I heard something about it. He said, let's just get past it. I said, Jack, I agree. We sit down. We're talking about comedians like Myron Cohn and all those guys. He hands me his new cell. He says, call me. We're back on track again. That night, he went into the hospital. And a few days later, never came Oh, wow. Out. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys got to patch things up uh, before he passed away. And uh, certainly an incredible talent, he, even, you know, in spite of whatever human shortcomings that he had. So tell me about what you're what you're doing now. What you're doing now, I just love. And I think uh, it's something that our audience would be really receptive to in many cases. Fabulous. What happened was about... Seven years ago, people were constantly asking to hear the stories about Jackie Mason and Sid Bernstein and Pat Cooper and, and all those people. And they just loved them. If I'd go to somebody's home for dinner, they say, Hell, Al, do you got a story about Alan King or Jerry Lewis? And, and they would just love it. So I, told, I called Pat Cooper and I said, Pat, you know, you think I should put this into a presentation and try to do it? And Pat says, L, yes. He said, as a younger man being involved with us, you were a witness to the greatest era of comedians and singers and variety performers. There'll never be again that type of an era where so many great names, Buddy Hackett, Milton Berle, Henny Youngman, all performing at the same time. I called Jackie. Jackie told me the same thing. He said, L, I want you to do it. And I called Tommy Dreesen. And he said, try it. You got nothing to lose. And Frank, it worked immediately. I went down to a couple of uh, assisted living facilities uh, and I said, hey, I want to audition like everybody else auditions. And it was. So they actually audition performers at assisted living facilities. I don't know if they did, but I offered them an audition. I said, guys, I don't want to take your money until you see what I do works, because I don't know if it works. So I go down there, audition, fabulous response from the audience. I share the stories and show video clips of the great performances of all these guys, and then end with a kind of sing-along. And I would tell the executive director, I said, look at the response. They don't need their medications. They need Milton Berle. And I said it very, very seriously. And I found that they were bringing me back once a week for a fee. And my audience could be 50, 60, 70 people in wheelchairs coming down, laughing, having a great time. With COVID, I was the first guy to get closed out. 
So I had, there's a lady named Donna Lapita. She runs a, an assisted living in Little Neck. She said, oh, there's something called Zoom that her daughter teaches on it. I don't know what she said, Zoom. I thought she wanted me to run around the living room. I don't know what <laughs> Zoom was. So she said, can you try it? I said, let's figure this thing out. I tried it and it worked. And what I found out now over the last two years is I'm broadcasting this to facilities and communities around the United States, mostly in four states. And on a weekly basis, I'm getting those crowds come into their social rooms to laugh and to sing with the great Broadway shows, with the classic comedians, with interviews like Marlo Thomas, who came on my program recently. And they're having a great time. And when their grandkids are visiting with them, their grandkids in their 20s, Frank, they love it even more. I can imagine. So is there a way, if we're not living in an assisted living facility, that we can see these shows? Uh, no, because what I do, actually there isn't, because what I do is, uh, I mean, it's not YouTube, I send it to them on Zoom. And uh, so they, I send them the link, and then I do it live so uh, it's interactive. Now, um, uh, 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 what happened during isolation, which is an even more interesting story, I, they telling me, say, oh, you know, things are bad here. We're not even letting them gather in the social halls. Mm. They're locked in their rooms. I said, hey, look, I want you to take one of your aides on an iPad, and I want you to walk right into their rooms and let me go one-on-one with them because they're going to drop dead of a broken heart. Yeah, they're no, going to die of isolation. That's for let sure. Let me into that room and let me bring in Milton Berle and Barbara Streisand and Jack Benny. And you cannot believe the looks on their faces when I, they were trapped in those rooms. No, I, I can imagine. Elliot, on that note, uh, we're going to have to actually end it there. But I want to encourage folks to, at the very least, check out your website, ElliotGordonPresents.com. They could learn a little bit more about you and your history and what you're doing now. That's Elliot with two Ts. Elliot, I hope we can talk again soon. Frank, you're the best. Thank you very much. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is ZZ Top. Hey, we're going to talk Russia and Ukraine coming up in just a minute. Uh, looking forward to talking with Richard Bay and Michael Laverko. And uh, more importantly, where we go from here. So in terms of uh, my day yesterday, uh, I'll tell you one of the things that really annoyed me is um, my, my wife asked me to go to Bank of America where she has an account and she added me to the account so that I can make deposits and take money out and stuff like that. And a couple of people, a couple, everything all right there, man? Okay. A couple of people who came to Carmine's christening, they gave him checks written out to him. So I went down to the bank with a copy of his birth certificate, hoping to get him added to our account. And lo and behold, I get there at 401, 401, the door is locked. Door's locked. 
I'm knocking. I see people in there. They look like they're transacting business. And then I see the sign on the door says they close at 4 o'clock Monday through Friday. Now, can I ask you a question? I, and this is why this is not my favorite bank. What kind of bank closes at 4 o'clock? Isn't the whole definition of banker's hours 9 to 5? And that's restrictive enough. Why, why would you ever go to a bank that closes at 4 o'clock? They can't stay open till 5? Now i got to get up early in the afternoon tomorrow and head over there. We'll see how that goes. Russia and Ukraine, straight ahead. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thank you for listening. For the last 70 days or so, maybe more... We have been discussing a great deal this war between Russia and Ukraine. And on this program, repeatedly, I have tried to uh, seek out voices that you're not hearing on cable news, with the exception of one program or two, uh, voices that, for the most part, you're not hearing on this radio station, and voices that have been pilloried by many of you in the audience as isolationists, as uh, Putin propagandist, as uh, whatever, whatever the, uh, you know, uh, Russia file, Russia zombie, um, you know, all sorts of pejorative names for people that have a different point of view on the current crisis in Russia and Ukraine than the bipartisan foreign policy establishment in Washington. And, um, the, even though we're now, I think, at day 70 or thereabout of this war in in between Russia and Ukraine, there seems to be more and more news on this each day. Yesterday, we see the news that the EU is taking a major step towards a Russian oil ban, and they're instituting new sanctions on Russia. It's being reported that Vladimir Putin could be ready for an official declaration of war, uh, possibly as soon as May 9th. Uh, Ukraine apparently is investigating over 9,000 plus cases of war crimes. Uh, You have a lot of people in both parties uh, in Washington eager to send as much aid to the Ukrainians to fight against the Russians as we possibly can. And there are even some, although President Biden has resisted this call, there are even some who would like to adhere to Ukrainian President Zelensky's call for a no-fly zone. Now, um, I thought what we would try to do this hour is find two of the most intelligent people that I know and two of the most intelligent guests and the most articulate guests, not only on foreign policy, but a wide variety of subjects to talk about this issue and have a real robust discussion about it. And my role for the next 40 minutes or so is really just going to be to ask questions and let them answer. And because they're both much more intelligent than I am about where we go from here. Now, it seems like a lot of the a lot of the discussion about Russia and Ukraine 
deals with the role of NATO. So many people that I've had on this show that seem to have a more understanding view, and again, I know that's an oversimplification, of Vladimir Putin's invasion into Ukraine have pointed to NATO expansion as a provocative measure. Colonel Wilkerson has said that. Colonel Douglas McGregor has said that. Colonel Daniel Davis has said that. Pat Buchanan has said that. Michael Tracy has said that. Katrina Vanden Heuvel has said that. Um, Ralph Nader has said that. The list goes on and on of folks that have made that case. One of the places that that's really not heard too often is in the halls of Congress. In the House, you have a few people, both on the left and on the right, who question the role of NATO. I think that view is best personified by something Congressman Thomas Massey said on the floor of the House of Representatives this week about what NATO's role is and what it should have been after the Berlin Wall came down. Let me let me start out with uh, NATO and uh, NATO in, in its current formation. There might be a formation of that that doesn't apply for what I'm about to say, but its cor- current uh, formation and the way it was initially conceived, it's obsolete. It became obsolete when the Soviet Union fell. It was a, it was a check on the Soviet Union, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, we either should have dissolved NATO, reconstituted as something else, or just gotten the hell out of it as the United States. You know, the the Europeans could feel like they needed to keep some kind of uh, union, but of course they've already established one of those now too. But uh, our our role there was done. You know, President Trump said that, uh, I agreed with him on this. He said that Europe should pay its fair share of its of NATO, right? It should pay its fair share of its defense. Well, what's the fair share that the United States should pay for Europe's defense? I think the fair share is zero. They should pay, I mean, they're prosperous countries. They're more, far more socialist than us, although we're veering in that direction. They're far, they've got plenty of money to fund all these government programs that we don't even have here. And yet we're supposed to be told that the American taxpayer should be conscripted just, just as if you would conscript somebody into the military and send them to war, we should be conscripted economically into their wars, that we should be conscripted into paying for their defense. Yeah, uh, by the way, that was not on the floor of the House of Representatives. It was in Washington, but it was for a group called the Committee for the Republic, which I think generally takes a non-interventionist view when it comes to foreign policy. Somebody that has very passionate views when it comes to just about every subject, including foreign policy, is Richard Bay, a veteran TV and radio talk show host who, uh, of course, was a WABC alumnus who lost his job in part because of his vocal advocacy against. United States participation in the war in Iraq. These days, he's hosting a a very popular podcast called the Richard Bay Talk Podcast, which you can watch on YouTube. I subscribe. I watch it just about every week. And uh, somebody who's just as passionate is Michael Averco, uh, independent foreign policy analyst and media critic. Uh, Richard, uh, good morning. I know it's a late night. Thanks for getting up. Sure. You should be my agent. (laughs) 
Well, I'll give you uh, if I make 10 percent of everything you get from the appearance that you're doing with me today, then I might have enough to get on the Staten Island ferry. Um, Richard, let me begin with that argument uh, that uh, Massey and others have made that NATO and this was something that we heard a lot from Donald Trump from during the campaign, a little less so once he became president, um, that NATO sort of outlived its usefulness when the Cold War came down. What do you make of what Congressman Massey and other non interventionists have said with respect to NATO expansion on Russia's borders? Well, it's, a, it's obviously fallacious, as demonstrated by what's going on in Ukraine and uh, Russia right at this moment. I mean, to blame uh, NATO uh, for provoking uh, Putin is like blaming in the three little pigs, blaming the pig that made his house out of concrete and stone uh, because he didn't want the wolf to blow it down. It's obvious here nations want to join NATO. They Nobody twisted the arms of all the countries, <clears throat> including the Baltic states and the Eastern European countries that were at a NATO. Nobody bribed them to join NATO. No, they found its purpose necessary, not a Cold War antique. And uh, Putin's unprovoked megalomanic annihilation of a people and their country not only reinforces the necessity of this 70-year-old institution, uh, Sweden and Norway and, and the Baltic nations, they all are understanding more and more the necessity of this. And as for those people like uh, Pat Buchanan, one year, there are some libertarian principles uh, that... I find admirable. And one year I went to the Libertarian Convention in New York uh, until the, the leader of the organization started arguing that we should have never entered World War II. Patrick Buchanan makes the same argument that we should have stayed out of that war. Well, if you believe that, um, I, I, you know, I can have a debate with you, but I, 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 I think that's just so far out of the norm, it's not, it's not even worthwhile debating it. All right, well, putting... US, go, okay, ahead. go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, yeah. putting aside the... Um foreign policy debate about 1941 America. Uh, let's let's talk about 2022. And Michael Averco, who's a media critic and independent foreign policy analyst who's written for a wide variety of publications. Um, what about what Richard said there, that countries want to join NATO? And does he have a point that Russia's not invading any NATO countries? So maybe NATO is the brick house that a lot of the pigs are fleeing to so they can avoid having that house blown down, but, you know, blown, blown down, knocked down. Is there anything to that as far as you're concerned, Michael? Not at all. Uh, NATO, unfortunately, is an aggressive, imperialistic, anti-Russian bloc. The proof is uh, overwhelming. When the Soviet Union broke up, pro-U.S. sentiment in Russia was genuine and included people like Putin. When Russia asked to join NATO, first under Yeltsin and then inquiring under Putin, it was met with astonished amusement because, unfortunately, NATO, uh, it thrives on anti-Russian propaganda. All you have to do is listen to the harsh rhetoric that is very biased and inaccurate. The current head, Jens Stoltenberg, his predecessor, Angus Rasmussen. Now, in terms of who's to blame, blame gaming this situation, which has been done ad nauseum, let's look at the facts. 
post-Soviet Russia showed a complete willingness to accept a neutral Ukraine within its communist-drawn boundaries. They didn't even insist that Ukraine be, for example, in the Eurasian Economic Union or Collective Security Treaty Organization. They were fine with Ukraine being neutral, but with the imperialistic anti-Russian mindset of people in the EU and NATO who kept pushing the anti-Russian forces in Ukraine in another direction. And if you don't believe me, but, let's go back to the last few weeks and months of Yanukovych. But, Michael, then, ultimately, yes. keeping in mind, even if everything you said is true, it doesn't is. doesn't every, this still come down to Vladimir Putin invading a neighboring country that didn't attack Russia within its borders? Um, compared to and what about is it to show the hypocritical reflection projection of others compared to, for example, uh, Iraq, uh, NATO aggression against Yugoslavia. This is far more legitimate as far as wars go. Putin can say, OK, that for years, within reason, he tried to reach an agreement where Ukraine would be a neutral, non-threatening entity, and also that the Kiev regime honored the U.N.-approved Minsk protocol calling for a negotiated autonomy in Donbass, which, unfortunately, the Kiev regime and its western backers stonewalled. So, um, you know, this is the reality of the situation. And again, uh, you know, treating him as a monster is really a laugh when uh, we see how Madeleine Albright was eulogized when she coldly said to Jane Pauley that the killing of a half million Iraqi uh, children was a worthwhile effort. So when we talk about people with blood, we are looking at Biden on his past. We're looking at the likes of uh, Wesley Clark as well and uh, Hillary Clinton. And again, this could have been prevented if, you know, um, there was an agreement that that Ukraine be this neutral entity and that this uh, Donbass uh, protocol would be observed. Moreover, if the West was not pushing before you uh, interjected, Frank, Yanukovych, okay, and uh, Putin said, look, Ukraine's having problems. Why not the West and Russia and Ukraine sit down to work it out? The West's response, this is a matter of record, said, no, it's our way or the highway. The West was constantly playing a zero-sum game in Ukraine. And for the West, this meant a more anti-Russian mindset, which, never mind Russia, a lot of people in Ukraine reject. Uh, Richard, I know uh, Michael said a lot there. I'm not going to ask you to respond to everything. But one aspect of uh, what he said that I am going to ask you about is, could this have been prevented if the Western countries would have encouraged Ukraine to become sort of a, an Eastern European Switzerland, a, a neutral country with no interest in joining NATO or the EU and not seen as a potential, uh, a potential adversary to Vladimir Putin? It is neither our place nor our purpose, uh, nor even morally acceptable for us to make decisions for a country that has its own sovereignty. But I will say this, um, you know, when the, uh, when the American Revolution overthrew the British Empire, uh, they said it was the world turned upside down. And some of the things that I just heard really do turn the world upside down. When we talk about imperialism, it is Vladimir Putin who has said, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It is Vladimir Putin who is committed to reassembling 
the empire that Russia uh, employed, not only during the Soviet Union, but in the czarist days. That's the imperialism. The people in Ukraine have a right to decide their own sovereignty, as do the people in Switzerland who, uh, who have joined Ukraine in this fight after spending centuries of, uh, being, uh, of neutrality when wars were raging, including World War II. Um, I happen to think that the solidification of NATO and the almost uh, universal, universal unanimity of its members is a good thing. It also places, again, the U.S. as leader of the free world, where we have a special place, not, not being the policeman of the world, but as the ultimate example, and not only the example, but supporter of democratic republics. Uh, our support to Ukraine is commensurate with our ideals. I do agree. Iraq was a tremendous mistake based upon information that was either fabricated, exaggerated, or taken out of context. And I spent half a year trying to illustrate that on the radio. So, I, you know, you have to take each war within its own context. Uh, now, and in this particular context, um, we're, we're supplying uh, one more, just one last point. Sure. When we talk about supplying Ukraine, uh, you know, with you know, a, a couple of billion dollars from the American taxpayer, hell, we we spend a three uh, three billion dollars every year um, uh, helping military uh, helping Israel militarily. We spend a million dollars, a billion, excuse me, dollars this year in support of the Iron Dome. And Israel is a country that is prosperous and could well afford to pay for its own military protection. Uh, let me ask you this, Richard. Uh, George Beebe, yeah. he wrote an, a piece for – he was a former uh, diplomat, CIA uh, person, advisor on Russia issues to Dick Cheney. Um, he wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft with the title, Tell Us How This War in Ukraine Ends. And he writes, as calls grow for a victory over Russia, we should examine whether such a win-lose outcome is even possible. And he quotes General Petraeus, who posed the question at the outset of the Iraq War in 2003, tell me how this ends. If you were to answer that, uh, BB or by extension Petraeus, how do you see this war ending? And what would you like to see Biden and the United States do going forward? All right. I would say um, there were certainly people after Dunkirk who, who might say, including members of Churchill's own cabinet, how is this war going to end? Look at what just happened. The expeditionary force was thrown into the sea. Um, you know, we, we should we should make some sort of detente with Hitler. How is this war? War is a Pandora's box. You open it up and you don't know what's going to happen. So making a prediction, it's like Vietnam. Who would ever think that the the little country of North Vietnam with more ordnance dropped on it than was dropped in World War Two would defeat the mighty uh, military might of the of the strongest nation on Earth? Nobody would ever say that. So making predictions about that is is. Is kind of like uh, I don't know, uh, being a, uh, a fortune teller. But um, well, give me your hope. Your oh, hope. You asked me what should we do. Okay, 
I think May 9th is coming up, and it's a big propaganda day for Putin. Everybody's anticipating he's going to uh, have a formal declaration of war. I've been saying almost from the beginning that Joe Biden should go to Congress and ask for an authorization for the use of military force in um, Ukraine in the in response to the use of chemical weapons or uh, strategic nuclear weapons, as uh, uh, President Obama did, uh, you know, for Syria. And it doesn't mean that we that we go to war in Ukraine, but it means that when we say there is a red line, there is a there is something behind that red line to just say, oh, it's going to be really bad if you do this. It, 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 right. It, it can't it be an empty threat. It can't be. Yeah. Well, it's got to have a threat with something behind it. Right. And if we pass that bill, which Representative Adam Kinzinger, uh, you know, took up a few days ago, I've been saying this for weeks, and we passed it on May 9th, that would be a an international message that might even overshadow Putin's celebration of his crimes in Ukraine. Uh, let me ask you, Michael, one same question. What would you like to see the United States do going forward? And then uh, any reaction to what Richard just said to um, I have plenty of reaction. Mm-hmm. I'll be brief and concise as possible. First of all, I think it is very uh, disrespectful to refer to that holiday as propaganda. Many people consider it a sacred holiday, not only in Russia, but Israel on May 9th views that as a holiday as well. The $37 billion for the Kiev regime is much more than what Israel is getting. The $37 billion and the propaganda that uh, Ukraine can win this and reference to what happened in Vietnam. It's coaxing some Ukrainians to fight on, and it's going to mean, yes, more Russian deaths, but many more Ukrainian deaths. So it's not going to help uh, Ukraine. And as far as Vietnam goes, U.S. had to go a bit of a ways there. That was not as easy for them. Ukraine borders Russia. It's uh, a much different and actually easier operation in that sense. And in terms of respecting the rights of nation, there are two international agreements signed in Astana and Istanbul in 1996 and 2010, which say that while Nations can have the right to determine their security situation. It should not be at the expense of another nation, okay? And then when we talk about imperialism, let's look at what the Australian foreign minister said about a red line in Solomon Islands related to China, or Jake Sullivan at the thought of Venezuela, Nicaragua, or Cuba maybe possibly hosting a Russian military uh, arsenal. So it's not not only Russia with this mindset, and Putin does not want a recreation of the Soviet Union. That's a farce. When he said that it was a great geopolitical tragedy, well, what he's specifically referring to is the way it broke up, and it caused a lot of unnecessary suffering in the way it broke up. Putin is also on record as saying those who want to return to the Russian Empire are foolish and those that, uh, you know, want to uh, go to the Soviet Union are misguided. Um, I don't have the exact quote, but he definitely said something like that. And the comparison of post-Soviet Russia with uh, the Soviet Union, there are just too many uh, inaccuracies in regard to that. Now, I think your question to me posed on how we can best get out of this 
Well, or what would you like the United States to do going forward? But you okay. know what? I'm actually going to ask you to pause, Michael. Sure. We have to take a quick break. We'll begin with you when we come back. If uh, you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking with Michael Averco. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and uh, media commentator. And Richard Bay, veteran TV and radio talk show host, former WABC radio talk show host. And uh, you could currently see and hear him on the Richard Bay Talk podcast, which if you uh, just type that in on the YouTube, it comes right up. You hit the subscribe button, and then every time there's a new episode, you'll be alerted to it. I watch just about every week, and uh, I, I either I find myself agreeing, shouting at my computer screen, disagreeing. Uh, but I'll tell you, at the end of that show, when he reminisces a little bit about days from Richard's past broadcasting career, I always find myself with a smile, however I feel about uh, what Richard has said in, in terms of current events. We're going to continue with Richard Bay and Michael Averco straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. talking about the situation with uh, Russia and Ukraine, and I'll tell you, um, one of the things that we don't hear much is a discussion that deviates from the normal partisan talking points that you see uh, on cable news. And this is one of those issues where, uh, if you, whether you're talking about Lindsey Graham or Bob Menendez, they sound very similar in terms of policy. If you watch Sean Hannity or Don Lemon, they actually sound, uh, maybe not rhetorically, but policy-wise, pretty similar when it comes to uh, this issue. But there are alternative points of view, so we want to at least give a proper airing to them and uh, also a, an opportunity for people that support what President Biden is doing to respond. Michael Averco is here. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and a media critic. Richard Bay is here, veteran TV and radio talk show host. Michael, we were talking to you. Um, what would you like to see the United States do prospectively? And how do you think this this crisis ends? Okay, well, as long as the Biden administration is in office, unfortunately, this is going to go on. The good news is there's a good chance that he's not going to be president. The Republicans don't have as much of a neocon, neolib influence. And right now, uh, DeSantis-Trump uh, uh, influence seems to be getting the upper hand. In one of my recent articles, my next to last one, I sort of made a loose, and I stress loose analogy to what happened when we went from Johnson to Nixon and then from Carter to um, Reagan, at least when it came to East-West relations. Johnson heightened the war in Vietnam. Nixon gradually, uh, you know, brought that to an uh, end and uh, improved relations with the East, both the Soviet Union and China, both of them warring each other at the time. Uh, conversely, uh, Carter's uh, policy, uh, and Biden reminds me of a sort of latter-day Carter, very uh, provocative towards the Soviet Union. He funded the Afghan Muhadim, and we later found out how bad they were. And believe me, these uh, some of these people 
when Kiev regime controlled Ukraine are quite unsavory. And uh, this is the reason why the war is uh, going on. So I think, you know, unfortunately, we have to wait this out with Biden. The proof of the pudding is this. Pelosi led that Democratic delegation to Kiev. And like a day or two later, Zelensky, a communication PR guy, whatever you want to call him, Aristovich, who worked with Zelensky when they were both in the entertainment industry, he had the ballsy statement of, well, we're not going to negotiate on with Russia until they uh, surrender. Talk about chutzpah. Now, this is what I think will happen, okay, eventually, one way or the other. You know, Trump said, and the Pope has hinted to this too, that it could have been averted, but now the settlement that's going to happen is going to be different from something that could have happened, and it's to the detriment of the Kiev regime. This is why Zelensky's legacy is going to go down along the lines of, uh, say, Michael Avenatti. Uh, unfortunately for the Kiev regime, what's going to happen is Donbass is you know, going to be pretty much uh, independent, or at the very least, get a lot of autonomy. And I think that you know, if there's going to be a settlement, because there are a lot of people in Donbass who are very pro-Russian, and there was a good article written by a Russian about this, they're apprehensive about showing their pro-Russian sentiment, because they say to themselves, what happens if the Russians withdraw? The Kiev regime neo-Nazis are taking names. They can get screwed. So I I think Russia is going to insist that, that um, you know, under a uh, settlement or maybe even possible ceasefire, I think more of a settlement, there's going to have to be a continuation of Russian troops there. And if you're insulted by that, well, unfortunately, might does make right. We have U.S. troops still in Okinawa. We still have them in uh, Germany. And despite requests by the Iraqi parliament, we're still in Iraq. So there definitely has to be a continued Russian military presence in Donbass. Uh, maybe there can be an agree to disagreement on uh, Crimea. In terms of denazifying Ukraine, well, ideally, this is something that the Ukrainians should uh, handle. And I'm hoping that earnest people in the United States are going to start seeing the kind of unbridled neo-Nazi bigotry, disgusting, that has been going on, that has been grossly covered up by our so-called free press. Uh, that gets cleaned up. And then there's a matter of the sanctions and also these uh, frozen parentheses stolen assets. Let me uh, bring Richard in here. Uh, Richard, um, oh go go, I, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I don't even know where to where to how to frame the question. So respond well, as you like. Let's just talk about that last thing about the neo Nazis. Um, it was Lavrov saying that Hitler uh, was part Jewish that created outrage in Israel, which has uh, at least to this time heretofore uh, been sort of laying back. Uh, you know, on its commitments, uh, you know, to uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Um, first of all, I, I really do hope that the Republicans run on um, surrendering and running uh, from our support in Ukraine. I hope that I hope that's a major campaign issue. Well, I, I think they got a lot closer to that strategy with J.D. Vance's uh, win in Ohio yesterday. J.D. Vance, he didn't win. He's not a senator yet. Right, he won the primary, right. Yeah, let's see what happens. This country uh, uh, overwhelmingly is in support of Zelensky and Ukraine. So I hope it becomes a – I hope J.D. Vance makes it a campaign issue in in his Senate race. 
um, and, 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 you know, dissolving abortion. Uh, I hope that's what his campaign issues are. Uh, and so getting rid of Biden will stop our support for Ukraine. That's that's two years away unless we have another uh, terrorist attack at the Capitol. As for the Vietnam War, Nixon didn't end it. Nixon ran in 1968 on what he called a secret peace plan and that the war would be over if you voted for him. The war in we, we, we withdrew from South Vietnam in 1975. And as for the fact that it was so far away, what could we do? We couldn't supply ourselves. We had 500,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, Russia, which is right next door to Ukraine, doesn't have 500,000 soldiers in Ukraine. And to, uh, to put a patch over your eyes and say that Putin doesn't have a, um, a future um, 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 emissions to invade Moldova or to take over the entire southern coast of Ukraine and uh, create a, a Ukraine that is a landlocked nation. Um, if that's not if that's not an expansionist or imperialist, I don't know what is. I mean, he's ta- they're already talking about that third country, and he is attacking Odessa and trying to take over. It's not just the if it was just the dumbass. I mean, I, I could have a very reasonable discussion about the Donbass, where there is Russian support, primarily Russian-speaking people, but this isn't about Donbass. It's about, it's about creating a corridor from, U- from, U- uh, from uh, Crimea across southern Ukraine all the way to uh, another country on the other side. That's, what, that, that's where we are. And to ignore that is, um, is, is ignoring the reality of the situation. Uh, Michael, um, one of the points Richard brought up was something I was going to ask you about, which was the comments by the Russian foreign minister Lavrov regarding Hitler's uh, Jewish lineage um, as a, you know, basically in response to the question of, oh, how can you say Zelensky is influenced by Nazis if Zelensky himself is is Jewish? Um, keeping in mind that you don't necessarily view Putin as the James Bond-style villain that uh, he's been portrayed on overwhelmingly in the media and all of uh, the West, does do the people that that criticize what Lavrov said have a point in your view? Was that a bridge too far for Lavrov? Hey, um, I actually had an article out yesterday at Eurasia Review. If you Google my name, Eurasia Review, you go to my column, you'll see it's my most recent article. And um, he didn't choose his words carefully. He's an excellent diplomat. It was not an anti-Jewish statement at all. It got totally twisted. He did not say that Hitler was part Jewish. He said, someone said, well, you know, how could Ukraine be neo-Nazi if they have a Jewish president? He said, you know, you know, you can be Jewish. I mean, so what? And, you know, he made a reference. You know, there are some people who say that Hitler was part Jewish. Now, what he was trying to say is that, you know, in unfortunate instances, people can find themselves doing compromising things. As I note in my article during World War II, you had the Capos. Both of you might be familiar with these two very excellent movies, Europa, Europa, which came out in the early 1990s about an ethnic, about a German Jew whose family left Nazi Germany 
Then when he was captured by the Soviets, in order to survive, he claimed that he was an ethnic German in the Soviet Union. So this guy served in the Wehrmacht, actually. And uh, then this recent release um, called The Survivor about a guy based on a true story. He would fight death fights in Auschwitz. So he would survive, but in turn, the person he was supporting would die. About Vietnam and Nixon, very quickly, the point is, Nixon very much deflated, uh, you know, the uh, war there. And again, I have to emphasize this. The fact of the matter is post-Soviet Russia showed a complete willingness for a neutral Ukraine, but it was ultranationalists in the Kiev regime and their EU backers that were playing a zero-sum game. And uh, this cannot be accepted by Russia as well as the pro-Russian contingent there. And I don't think that it's really clear at all that uh, Russia actually seeks more than Donbass. But I will tell you this much. If uh, the Biden administration and, uh, say, his hypothetical successor want to continue this conflict, yes, more Russians will die, and yes, this war will go on maybe a bit longer, but many more Ukrainians, make no mistake about this, will die. So they will take over the Donbass now. But then what does that mean? The regime still fights. The next step is they're going to be beyond the Dnieper River. What, the regime is still going to fight on? Hey, you know, it's going to be, you know, a further conquest. And so goes uh, the nation. uh, So goes the nature of war. So um, the best way to prevent this is to have a different, a saner uh, presidential administration that is not looking to fight a parasitic proxy war at the expense of Russians and Ukrainians. And I also want to briefly mention, too, because I don't know if any of you, too, are aware of this disgusting crime story that happened in New York which relates very much to what's going on in there. It's in the New York Post, Frank. I sent you that article. Yes, I, I don't read know it. if you read it. I did. And I would be curious to see if this politically correct media would uh, comment on this uh, bigoted bias attack. In a Brooklyn bar recently, a Russian-speaking man was uh, harassed by a Ukrainian nationalist. The Ukrainian nationalist approached him saying, you have a Russian face. And so this guy who was speaking Russian said, hey, I'm from Zaporizhia. I'm Ukrainian. I'm half ethnic Russian, half, uh, you know, Ukrainian. And then this Ukrainian neo-Nazi said to him, uh, well, speak Ukrainian. And when the guy spoke Ukrainian with a Russian uh, accent, he got attacked with a bottle. Well, uh, law enforcement was able to come without but, you know, this Russian guy, Russian-speaking guy suffered injuries, and the Russian-speaking guy made a good point. You know, people who want to do that, let them go over there and do the fighting. That kind of behavior is evident in Kiev regime control. Ukraine, where neo-Nazis roam wild. Some of them are unappointed mayors. I can provide the specifics because I know a lot of people out there who rely on mass media. This is all being covered up. In the meantime, people who think along my lines, our lives are in danger. Some of us uh, have been killed, imprisoned, beaten. This is not a democracy, and mm-hmm. Zelensky is well, not deserving of uh, accolades. Right. He's well, yeah, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody listening would um, be okay with uh, somebody being beaten up for being Russian or speaking Russian well, I'm not at all. Okay with it either, but how do you know this guy is a neo-Nazi? He could be a thug who's overreacting. Was he what, calling everybody a neo-Nazi? Is is it's it's kind of hysterical. Uh, no, it's uh, not. And, if you know your history, oh, Richard, and no, that's the problem. A lot of really, people don't oh, know their yes, history. Yes, 
it is. There are white supremacists and neo-Nazis in the American military service. And over the past year, there have been a lot of articles about Richard, how we, what we can do to root them out. Richard, and, in, and for, and for uh, you're talking about a guy who got a bottle in his face. We're talking about Putin, who poisoned a doorknob so a man and his daughter would end up in the hospital, one of them dying, uh, who would send somebody with an umbrella with a poison tip to, uh, to inject it into somebody to put uh, a poison into the underwear of Navalny and then arrest him when he came back to uh, uh, Russia. I mean, this... this I, to me, I think this argument is absurd. There is the Azov or the Azov Brigade that does have neo-Nazi members in it. It's it's about 800 soldiers out of a force that more, is much uh, more over 200,000. So yes, it does exist there. It exists in the American military as well, and actually in Mariupol, in that uh, steel plant where they're holed up. Uh, as far as uh, as I know, uh, the soldiers fighting in there are a member of this right wing brigade. And that's one reason why they will never give up, because they know they will be summarily executed by the Russians if they do. But to say that uh, uh, Putin is not a James Bond type villain after the kinds of things he's done with doorknobs and underwear, umbrellas. Come Could on. I get a word in now? He is a James Bond type villain. Could I get a word in now? Go ahead, Michael. Yes. Okay, uh, the Stripple thing, even a British court said disingenuously and ridiculously that, well, we think the Russians did it, probably. They probably did it. I mean, what a court ruling. There is plenty of credible information indicating that another scenario could have occurred. You know, the uh, Russian expat community, former Soviet expat community in Britain, uh, a lot of them don't like the Russian government, but they have fights among themselves. So it's very possible that this guy, Skripal, who, by the way, supported Crimea's reunification with Russia, he could have very well have been knocked off by one of these uh, rival uh, exiles, and the rival exile would kill two birds in one shot get rid of Scripple and have, uh, you know, the bad guy Putin blamed for it. Also, you know, they were right near a uh, known chemistry uh, place where the Britain does these uh, experimentations on drugs related to Novichok. You mentioned this uh, umbrella incident. You're talking about something that happened in the Cold War era with a uh, Bulgarian in the United Kingdom by uh, uh, by the Bulgarian Secret Service. That was decades ago. The thing with Navalny and the underpants is uh, unsubstantiated, likely BS. Initially, we were told that Navalny was poisoned by uh, you know a tea drink that uh, one of his assistants brought, uh, brought over. But then the CCT camera showed that one of his assistants went to this concession stand. And uh, this concession person, how does he know that this is going to Navalny or that that person is for Navalny? It was an unopened sort of uh, beverage. And that looks very sketchy as well. In the meantime, I can give you a good number of uh, people, earnest individuals who have been killed or disappeared by this neo-Nazi regime. And I'm sorry, you don't think that nationalist 
the way he carried on in Brooklyn Bar is not neo-Nazism. We have a different interpretation of what that means. And in terms of Azov, let me tell you something about Mariupol. A lot of the people there are ethnic Russian and pro-Russian. I remember a few years ago, the BBC, the arrogant reporter spoke scornfully of two Mariupol residents who were saying, you know, Russia and Putin are right. And the BBC reporter arrogantly said, of course, these people don't know what they're talking about. There's a lot of pro-Russian propaganda here, like he knows better than they do. The reason why Azov was sent in large numbers, and their numbers are much bigger than 1,400, by the way, Richard. You want to fact check no, less, that? Less but than, anyway, no, um, the point is this. They were, sent, they were sent there because it's a pro-Russian area, and they wanted a jackboot put on these people. What's really disgusting is how the media keeps referring to this so-called mayor of Mariupol. You know, that guy fled, and for good reason. And you want to know something else? He was not democratically elected, as is true with a lot of the mayors in Kiev regime-controlled Ukraine. It's not a democracy. It's a corrupt kleptocracy, and there's neo-Nazism going rampant, and I can give you even more. All right, well, we got to pause. Richard, we'll give you the um, the first That's opportunity to respond when, when we come back. Take a quick break. Oh, listen. I'm a neo-Nazi, too. They're everywhere. Every bar fight is a neo-Nazi. The, the people that stormed the Capitol were neo-Nazis. Right. All right well, I'm not saying that seriously. I'm just saying yeah, understood. we understood. throw this word around. It has no meaning anymore. All right. Well, let me pause. It does when it applies. This is true in that instance. Gentlemen, let me pause. We'll continue in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Michael Averco is here. Richard Bay is here. We'll continue straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight i'm frank morano in the midst of a very spirited discussion with uh, richard bay veteran radio and tv talk show host you can check out his podcast on youtube and michael averco he's an independent foreign policy analyst and media critic uh richard uh, let me uh, allow you to continue your thought and also ask a question um one of the things that we've heard by a lot of people no matter what their view on the russia situation is uh, if they're supporters of President Trump, that we wouldn't be in this situation today. People who support a more aggressive stance towards Russia, folks like Sean Hannity said, say, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, that, uh, oh, uh, Trump w- was very tough on Putin. Putin wouldn't have tried to do something like this if he were president. Other people that think that support a more dovish approach to Russia, they say, well, Putin wouldn't have done something like this because they know Trump wanted peace with, uh, with Russia and Putin rather than a aggressiveness. Uh, Say whatever you want in response to the previous discussion. But um, do you think there's any truth to that? I know you're not a fan of Donald Trump, to say the least. But do you think there's any truth to that, that hypothetical that maybe if Trump were there, we wouldn't have seen this invasion? All right. Let me start with this. There is a definition for neo-Nazi. I would advise all listeners to look it up. And it does apply to every person that you don't like as much as some people uh, think that it might. Now, Donald Trump as president, um, I happen to remember very vividly the most humiliating moment uh, of a presidential appearance or action 
since Bill Clinton did something with a cigar with Monica Lewinsky. And that was the humiliation at Helsinki, where Donald Trump stood on a stage next to Vladimir Putin and took his side and said, oh, I believe him, and did not accept um, the uh, American intelligence, did not accept what he had been told by his advisors, but sided with Vladimir Putin. I've also never heard Trump ever say and utter any criticism of Vladimir Putin about anything. I can't, you know, I could suspect why that is the reason, but he never has. Um, I think one of the things that we've left out completely are the sanctions. And the head of the Russian Central Bank is projecting that this year um, their GDP will drop by up to 10 percent and at least 8 percent. And if you think inflation is bad here, in Russia, inflation is projected to rise to 23%. I mean, it's taken some time. They've had some uh, reactions that have delayed the, the fall of the ruble and the economic impact of some of those sanctions. But, um, but, they are, but they are going to hit that economy and hit the country. And that's going to have an effect on the Russian people. And they might just sit there and say, hmm, is this worth Odessa? So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with those sanctions and what what Putin feels uh, once he starts to feel the heat. There are also rumors, who knows, that uh, uh, Putin is ill and may have to go in for some kind of surgery. Um, You know, uh, it's possible. Anything is possible when when war begins, because... uh, it's a Pandora's box, as I've said. Um, oh, and, oh, Donald Trump. Hey, listen, Donald Trump gets well, gets along so well with Putin. I think that uh, I think that Biden should appoint him a special peace emissary to go meet with. Remember Lavrov? They were joking in the White House. He was joking about firing um, uh, James Comey, the FBI director, and then he told Lavrov some um, top-secret information that got the Israelis kind of ticked off. Um, he has no problem with Putin. He declared his love for uh, Prime Minister Xi, President Xi in China. Of course, the love letters between um, him and um, Kim Jong-un are legendary. He has a great way of communicating uh, with authoritarians, vicious authoritarians. So we should have him. Uh, we should allow him to negotiate a ceasefire, a peace agreement, and the repatriation of Ukraine citizens that have been taken and um, uh, uh, transported against their will to Russia. I mean, Trump could actually win the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know where Trump stands at all. Anyway, he hasn't said. Uh, the only thing that I remember him saying of, of a recent note is, "Oh, they should sit down and work this out." Well. Putin was the one who said negotiations are over. So, I, you know, uh, Michael, I know where, do you know where Trump? You're a Trump supporter. Where does Trump stand on this? I mean, he said he was uh, against the Iraq war. Right, 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 right. Very quickly, neo-Nazi, new Nazi. You're wearing Nazi logos. You're doing bigoted things like that guy in a bar. Definitely qualifies as a neo-Nazi. And Trump, in terms, in terms of what it means. 
Yes, it That's does. Neo-Nazi means new Nazi. These guys are wearing Nazi patches, and they behave in a bigoted manner, a violent manner. They're neo-Nazis. End of discussion. The bar wearing a Nazi patch. I'm sorry? Was the guy in the bar wearing a Nazi patch when he punched the other he guy in the nose? He said that you have a Russian face, you're speaking Russian, and then when he didn't like the guy's uh, Russian accent, he took a swipe at him. Clear bigotry. We disagree. Let's agree to disagree yeah. and move on to uh, the other point, otherwise the show's going to go down the toilet. So but let me get not, to these other points, please, not, very quickly. I know we only have so much time. Now, you know, Maria Ivanovich, you might remember her. She was the ambassador to Ukraine who Trump uh, fired. In a PBS statement, she recently said, you know, I think Trump would have averted war, but I don't think it's a good thing. So in other words, it's a better thing that Russians and Ukrainians are killing each other. I mean, that's a very ethical sort of uh, way to go. Hmm. Uh, Michael, let me just get you to weigh in on this one final question, because we're just about out of time. uh, But I don't want this uh, to be unaddressed. A lot of people have said, even folks that don't want American involvement in Ukraine, that if Putin were to use chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, that that would be a red line that would require an American response. Whatever you think about the possibility of Putin actually doing that, would you agree that if Putin were to use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons in Ukraine, that that would demand some sort of a response from the international community, including America? Um, that would be a serious charge directed against anyone, including the Kiev regime, and there are indications that they could very well utilize chemical weapons. Um, let's also keep in mind, too, what the U.S. government acknowledged and much of mass media sheepishly approved. U.S. government said that a lot of the information we're releasing on Russia, Ukraine, has a good probability of being false, and parentheses, I think it probably means they know it's false, but it's being said to create a negative image to try to undermine the Russian effort because this then goes uh, back to Russia. So this thing with the chemical weapons, they've never shown a sign of doing it. We know about the crop which Adrian Monte, who you've had on this show, has eloquently debunked about Assad supposedly using chemical weapons. This Kiev regime is a racket. It's full of, like, style over substance, overly propagandistic BS. Uh, We could do a whole show on that. I know you don't have the time. Um, So, again, if Putin were to use those weapons uh, and you were to be given... Uh, indisputable proof, would that be enough to invoke an American-led international coalition response? Uh, Chemical weapons are illegal, and I don't think that they have a chance of doing it. I think it's more likely the Kiev regime would do it because they're more desperate, and they're pretty good, it seems, at doing false flag operations. So I really think it's a uh, non-issue. In terms of the nuclear option, That would have to be something that would really, really get hairy, and I shudder to think if it would uh, even uh, reach that point. But in the meantime, there is a good way out of it. We've got to get rid of these lunatics like uh, Biden. All right, um, uh, Richard, we got about 30 seconds. They're yours if you want to comment on the last word. Everyone should just note that he didn't answer the question. He just said, oh, it would never happen. But he didn't answer the question, what what we should do if it does happen. 
Uh, what if the Kiev regime does it? Why don't you phrase the question that way? What if the Kiev regime does it? The Kiev regime is committing gentlemen, atrocities. Gentlemen, and we're gonna, a blind gentlemen, to we're going to have to end it there. Gentlemen, I appreciate it. Out of time. Um, Richard Bay and Michael Averco, my thanks. You could uh, check out Michael Averco at Eurasia. Just Google Eurasia. You could read his columns there. And uh, Richard Bay is on YouTube. Just type in Richard Bay Podcast. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Everybody knows I'm a baseball fan, always have been, but I'll be honest. I, and I was watching the Mets today as they lost, or yesterday, as they lost to the Atlanta Braves. I still watch the Mets. I like the Mets. I watch uh, as much baseball as I can. I was thrilled to be able to go to the Staten Island Ferry Hawks game Tuesday night. And I'm looking forward to uh, going to quite a few Brooklyn Cyclones games uh, this year. But uh, I'll be honest, I am nowhere near the baseball fan now that I was when I was 10 years old or 11 years old or 12 years old. And to me, baseball, as great a game as it is, and I do love it. I love to play it. I love to watch it. I love to talk about it. I love to listen to it on the radio. That's really my favorite way to enjoy baseball. I love to go to the ballpark. I love to smell it. I love when you have a baseball glove and you put it in your over your face and you inhale deeply. The smell of that baseball glove is unlike anything. I love getting in, getting a new baseball glove and thinking of new and exciting ways to break that glove in, whether it's a dryer, whether it's playing catch with it, whether it's shaving cream, uh, whether it's oil, which I know a lot of people say you should never do. Love everything about baseball. I am a baseball fan. But as an adult, I don't have the same kind of obsession that I did with baseball as a child. Bottom line, to me, baseball is great a game as it is. It's meant to be a children's game, okay? Um, and that's why I just posted on my Facebook page the greatest thing that I've seen over the last 24 hours. Um, there was the Toronto Blue Jays were playing the New York Yankees, and you could watch the video of this at facebook.com slash Fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. And they were playing in Toronto. And you know, I think you can really appreciate this if you know if you have ever been a child at a baseball game, rooting for your favorite team and rooting for your favorite player. Aaron Judge, who is the first of all, the Yankees are having a great season, by the way. Congratulations to them. Aaron Judge is one of the uh, best players on the Yankees, one of the best hitters in baseball, quite frankly. And he's really just a tremendous, tremendous player. So Tuesday night's game between the Yankees and the Blue Jays, Aaron Judge launches a home run into the stands during the top of the sixth inning. The ball went soaring towards a group of hopeful fans. And after it dropped, and this is what happens at baseball games, whether it's a foul ball or any kind of ball, but especially a home run ball. I mean, you catch a home run ball at a baseball game, forget about it. I mean, people go their whole lives without catching a foul ball. And even people with season tickets, catching a home run ball 
it's it's almost like winning the lottery. I mean, not quite, but almost. Um, the person who ends up with the ball is a Blue Jays fan. And after turning around, he sees a young Yankee fan behind him, a kid, wearing an Aaron Judge shirt. So they're in Toronto. That's the home team, the Blue Jays. And the the kid that's behind him, who was also going for the ball, wasn't just a Yankee fan. He was an Aaron Judge fan. And he's wearing an Aaron Judge jersey on his uh, – or an Aaron Judge shirt. So this guy, with maybe about three seconds of hesitation, which is to say none at all, he gives the ball to the kid. The Blue Jays fan catches the home run Aaron Judge ball, and he gives it to the Yankee fan. So I would encourage you, if you haven't seen this, please uh, go to my Facebook page and watch this clip uh, I'm going to see if I can share it on my uh, on my Twitter as well, uh, because uh, to me, it just it made me feel, you know, so good. I really what. Yeah, let me see if I can uh, share this on um, on Twitter. But um, I made my day to see this because the kid was so happy. The judge fan who apparently we don't even think knew this Blue Jays fan. The kid immediately starts crying and he gives a hug to this Blue Jays fan who we don't he probably has never met before. He he gets so emotional over receiving the ball and the Blue Jays fan hugs him back and he points at the kid and he nods in approval of the reaction. After the game, Aaron Judge heard about what happened in the stands. And then he didn't just check out the video. He met both of the fans the following day and he brought the young the younger guy the the kid to tears uh once again by by meeting him the, the it was a 9 year old kid his name is Derek Rodriguez and the ball was given to him by a fella named Mike Lanzalotta and that, so before the game yesterday Wednesday they both got to meet him uh so I mean, that's a really nice thing. Made my day. I'd encourage you to watch the video if you haven't seen it. I've just linked to it at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. But I was listening to some of the discussion of this gift of this baseball, this home run ball being given away to this kid by Aaron Judge, no less. An Aaron Judge home run ball. I mean, that's it could be worth something, potentially. Aaron Judge is somebody that could go on to hit five or 600 home runs. And I'm not... I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, it, a lot of people were debating whether or not you would have done the same thing. And I'm wondering what your answer to that is. Let's say you're a fan of the home team and you catch a home run ball from the visiting team. Do you keep it? Do you throw it back like they do at Wrigley Field with the Cubs? Do you give it to a young fan that you see is also going for it? Because I have to be honest, I I think I would do it, especially after seeing um, the situation here. But I don't think most people would. I think there's such a 
desire to have things, such a, uh, a a greed at times, especially when it comes to baseball memorabilia, which can, can be quite valuable, especially when it comes to people that are future Hall of Famers like Aaron Judge is. I, I mean, we don't know if he's a future Hall of Famer. For all we know, he could get hurt next year and not be lead a Hall of Fame career. But if he continues at the same level of play or close to it that he is now for the next 15 years, that's a Hall of Fame level career. I think a lot of folks may not give that ball away. So I want you to call me at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And tell me, A, would you have given that ball away if you're in the same situation? And because, look, I don't know anything about this guy, Lanzalotta, but he probably has children or a nephew or um, whatever, a little cousin that probably would get a real kick out of a home run baseball. And he could have given it to any of them. But he instead chose to give it to a fan of the rival team who he didn't even know. So uh, let me know what you think about that. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. The other story that was very interesting, I meant to mention it earlier, was the situation involving Robinson Cano. Um, If you're not a big baseball fan, either of the Mets or Yankees, you may not be familiar with um, Robinson Cano. But Robinson Cano, um, see, right around this time, the baseball teams all have to shrink their roster and they have to make some cuts. I think they now go down to a 26-man roster. And prior to that, it was a 28-person roster. And of the 26, I believe, and they've they've changed this a little bit, and I'm not as up on the baseball rules as when I was 10. So pardon me if I misspeak, but I believe they now – have a uh, requirement that 14 of the players have to be pitchers. So you only get, again, I believe that's correct. I believe you only get 12 position players. I think that's correct. I stand to be corrected. But one of the players they let go was Robinson Cano. Now, Robinson Cano has uh, really had a fascinating and interesting career. He was with the Yankees, had quite a career with the Yankees, and He's been cut by the Mets. Now, here's what's interesting. And this is how you know we are in a new era with the new owner of the Mets, Steve Cohen, the billionaire hedge fund magnate, because this is not something that would have happened in a previous era. Here's what's interesting. Robinson Cano, who probably, as much as a leader as he was in the clubhouse, he probably deserved to be cut. He was only batting 167. Robinson Cano still had $37 million left on his contract. So essentially, that means they are going to be paying Robinson Cano $37 million not to play baseball. Now, we've seen this with other Mets before and other teams before. You're paying a guy that much money. You're not cutting him. Generally, the the attitude from ownership is, I'm paying this guy $37 million. I, you find a spot for him. I don't care if you have to have him sweep up after the game. Got to do something. So I, I am curious, and I know that a lot of the players looked to Robinson Cano as a um, leader, 
But I, I am curious what you think of that decision and what you think it means for the future of the Mets because Steve Cohen is being venerated all over sports media for this decision. In fact, one columnist in the New York Post, Ian, Ian O'Connor, said that the Robinson Cano decision proves that the Mets' most valuable weapon is Steve Cohen. I don't know a lot of owners or of anything, radio stations, television stations, baseball teams, that would have made that cut when someone's earning that much money. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave that cone thing aside. I want to comment on the ball issue. You know, a couple of things. You said a lot of things about baseball. You know, it's funny that you talk about you were bragging about the glove, how you love breaking in gloves. <clears throat> because I was just reflecting as an adult how um, what, what a jackass I used to be when I was a kid. When I bought a baseball glove and I would sleep on it, and I would put it under my mattress with a softball in it, you know, and then, like, rub it with alcohol. My father would, like, rub it up with alcohol, you know, like that was his thing, you know. And then we would tie it up with a with, with cord and stuff it up. Like, like, what was I, headed to the pros or something? I mean, I, I, I was just reflecting what a jackass I was. And then you come and say, oh, I love to break in gloves. Okay, you know, teachers don't. Exactly. But it was kind of funny. <laughs> but as far as the uh, ball, ball issue goes, I can relate to that, too, because I would have killed for a foul ball. I used to go with my glove and everything. And I thought it was such an inspiring story how people just, you know, the the spirit of giving overcomes that selfish desire to get a baseball. Did you watch you know? the video? Did you see the video? Not yet. Listen to I'm me. Definitely you gonna... have to. You have to watch it. You absolutely have to watch it. It will make your day and it will restore, in my view, your your faith in uh in human kindness, uh, Larry. Uh, but I appreciate the comment. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222-1234. Four open lines if you want to comment. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. I, I think the canoe was $47 million. And, uh, well, no, he, well, it, it was a $47 million contract, but he's already gotten some of that money. That That's what – it's $37 million that they still have to pay him. Regardless, even if he's cut and even if he's not playing, yeah, but he's he's not a, he's not a philanthropist. I mean, baseball the, the salary's guaranteed, so he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. Well, I, I know, I know, but that's what's so so interesting about this is because Steve Cohen is essentially saying that each roster spot is so important, and if you can't produce. You're out, even if you're making thirty-seven million. That's not something we've seen from Mets ownership previously. They, they you know, Bob. They're still paying Bobby Bonilla because they had to buy him out of his contract. But right. they kept Bonilla playing uh, towards the end of his career. And I was a Bonilla fan, especially with his first tenure with the Mets. Even when Bonilla was batting like one sixty-seven, because he was making so much money, and the attitudes from the Wilpons and or the Double Days was, you know, we, we've got to play this guy because we're paying this guy. Well, I understand, but it wouldn't matter whether if he could produce or if he broke his arm or if he broke his leg and he can't play anymore. They still got to pay no matter what. That's, yeah, that's well, the, the, the injury is I, I always a gamble. Same yeah. contract. I hope you have the same contract, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> My my next one, we'll see. Well, I, I also want to mention about the baseball, Frank. 
Uh, you know, these baseballs, if it wasn't autographed and a kid caught it, it really isn't worth anything. It's just uh, a souvenir for the kid. Yeah, I, I I understand that. I mean, I guess the exception to that is um, if it's a milestone home run, like somebody's 500th home run or 600th home run. Uh, I I think that you know I I guess I guess that's true. Still, I, I think this degree of um, sportsmanship among fans and camaraderie with people who are fans of a rival team isn't something that we see that often in baseball, which is why it's such a rare story. No, I, I agree. I think it was a very generous thing to do. But those special 500 uh, hit balls or something, those are all marked. So those yeah. balls, you know, they, they know those balls. I mean, I, I bought a, a bunch of balls from QBC once, a five-ball package for the kids. They threw in an A-Rod ball when he was a rookie. I had the ceiling. I said, who the heck is A-Rod? I was going to send him back. And, and my young son says, no, Dad, keep it. we got to draw Pepitone in there. Keep it, keep it. So I kept it, but you never know. That's right. You never do know, Neil. That's part of what makes baseball so fun. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Got the AC report coming up in a little bit with David Pena. Uh, we'll talk about a wide variety of subjects with him, including the 10th anniversary of his uh, bar, his club in um, in Atlantic City. Uh, let me say hello to Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hey there, Frank. Um, you know, my father was a Mets fan, and I was a Yankees fan, and we used to go to see both teams. And I saw Nolan Ryan pitch a no-hitter. Oh, really? Okay. When? Yeah. Oh, it was so many years ago. But uh, I I love Aaron Judge. Well, who, who was Nolan Ryan playing for at the time? The Mets. No, he never pitched a no-hitter with the Mets. Oh, well, then it was the Astros, I guess. Uh, Maybe I, the Mets played the Astros? or. <laughs> well, very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, he had seven no-hitters. Um, I, I don't know if he ever threw one against the Mets. Uh, maybe I'd have to, I'd have to look at, I'd have yeah, to. Yeah, I think he did actually. No, I, yeah, I'm looking, uh, he didn't. He threw uh, one against Kansas City, one against Detroit, one against Minnesota, one against Baltimore, one against Los Angeles, one against Oakland, one against, uh, one against Toronto. So Carol, unfortunately you have been caught fibbing and you're not allowed to call in for the rest of the show. 800-848-WABC. See? We fact-check. We fact-check even callers here. Uh, Carolyn is in Manhattan. She's been patiently holding, wanted to weigh in on the Ukraine situation. Hello, Carolyn. Hello, Richard. How you doing? I'm Frank, actually, but I'm still I'm fine Frank. in spite of the fact that I'm not Richard. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, Frank. Well, I just want to say that guy, Michael, I don't know what his name is. What is his last name? Averco. He is one of the smartest men I've ever seen. Because you had another guest on there was talking about, the, uh, you know, the Germans being in there. He's absolutely right. Like he can talk about the reason why Putin went in there for the assets. You know that Putin already took 87% of the Black Sea and the Azores? He's taking, like, off some of their, what do you call it? They have offshore oil and gas. Putin just wants to hook up all the oil and gas and take it back to Russia. And they're not telling us the truth. They are. Those Germans are there. Well, you know uh, what I'm saying? I do, Carolyn. And we've chronicled that on this program. You know, I'm just glad we had an opportunity to air both points of view. And I'm glad we get to break it up a little bit with lighter subjects like baseball. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Uh, 
The backdrop is Cano is 39 and a half. He was suspended last year right. for steroids. Now, I don't think he did it like the last 10 years because they've been testing it. Like some right. people said, oh, he must have been doing it all along. But it is possible he could have warmed up and got back to being like close to a 300 hitter. But the problem is they could see his fielding was a step slow and that was very unlikely to get back up to as good as other players might be at second base. So I think you could say that he's not a 167 hitter. He probably would have warmed up and started hitting, but his fielding wasn't that great. So between uh, and, and and once that drops off, I don't think that's going to come. Yeah. Back. Well, now so, now you have the DH though in the National League. If his hitting got back up to par, they could have used him as a DH. But it's a fine point. Look, I get it. I get the reasons to drop Cano. Uh, part of me is sad to see him go because he is a veteran, and I like the veterans. And uh, because he was such a leader in the clubhouse. But I, I think if you put all the money aside, which is very difficult when you run a business, you put all the money aside. They are, you know, I'll remember, I'll just give one example. When they decided to bring Imus in as the host of the morning show here in December of 2007, um, around that time, uh, again, I, I have no idea what any of these guys make now, so I'm not betraying any any disclosure here. But around that time, around 2006, 2007, both Curtis Lewa and Ron Kuby, as the co-hosts of The Morning Show, were making about $650,000 each. About. So they're making a lot of money. So what they chose to do, management at the time, ownership at the time, not anywhere closely remote, uh, remotely related to management or ownership now. That was three companies ago. But what they decided to do was fire Ron Kuby and pay him, you know, some brief severance, whatever his contract called for, and keep Curtis. Now, why? Why would they want to keep Curtis when they already had another morning show, knowing they had to pay him that amount of money? Because they were afraid at the time that Curtis would go to WOR and host the morning show there. Because remember what was going on with WOR's morning show at the time. The morning show was in total disarray. They didn't have John Gambling at the time. John Gambling was on at 10 o'clock on this station. So what they did was they paid Curtis to essentially warehouse him so that he couldn't go to WOR and host a competing morning show to compete with Imus. So what they did was they paid Curtis the same amount of money he was making, and they said, we're not going to let you leave. Curtis said, just let me leave. Let me leave. Let me see if any other radio station wants to hire me. They said, nope, we're going to pay you every dollar you're entitled to. You're going to work one hour a day from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. And that time from December of 07 to April of 08 was among the most unhappiest professional times I've ever seen Curtis. Not because he was destitute. Look, I mean – even with all the kids he keeps having and all the divorces he keeps having, $650,000 is a lot of money. But because Curtis thought that he could beat Imus if he was on a comparable station. So ultimately, the bean counters at WABC say, wait a minute, we're paying this guy $650,000 a day to do one hour a day, not even 
you know, at prime time. We're paying them to do an hour at a time when a lot of people are still asleep and not yet listening to the radio. Maybe we should find something else for him to do. So what do they do? Ultimately, they had him host 5 to 6 and 10 a.m. to noon. One of the reasons why is because he was earning so much more money than John Gambling. Station management wanted to get their money's worth out of Curtis. And the thought is, you know, if we're paying this guy all this money, let's give him some more hours to do. So they put him on from 5 to 6 and then again from 10 a.m. to noon. And then they were so eager to have get their money's worth out of Curtis that they had him on from 5 to 6 a.m., 10 a.m. to noon, and then again 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. They brought him back at night to do 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then they said, well, you know, let's have him actually start at 9 he could do one hour local at 9 p.m. and then another hour and another three hours nationally because the, the mentality at the time, and this is generally the mentality with ownership or management of any corporate entity, generally the thinking is we're paying this guy. Let's squeeze every drop of productivity that we can out of him. That's the radio equivalent of what we're seeing with Robinson Cano. I don't know of another baseball owner that would do this. This is really rare. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, Neil mentioned players getting hurt. That happens all the time. That's a, a bad. I mean, that's a bad break for the team and the player. But you have to pay out a player's contract if he gets hurt. That happens all the time. Cutting a player that is still going to get paid thirty-seven million dollars prospectively that doesn't happen. That's the rare aspect of this. 800-848-9222. Now, I think Curtis was uh, and is a much more valuable asset to WABC in 2007 and 2008 than Robinson Cano was to the New York Metropolitans in 2022. But the point is still somewhat analogous. 800-848-9222. Um, Mike is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello. Morning there, Frank. Morning. Uh, a couple of things. I, I grew up in, you know, around in Shea Stadium. Every day, I, I got to see the 69 Mets. I used to sit with Nancy Siva, you know, doing ball games. Uh, I was there the night Siva almost pitched that perfect game, and that was the greatest game in the world to see. It wasn't just the, the, the game, almost a perfect game. They were playing against the Cubs, who they were chasing put a pennant and all. The you know, rivalry. Leo DeRocha was the manager of the Cubs. It was uh I was eleven years old. I, I didn't really know uh, Leo's history with, with baseball in New York, but sure. uh, now I know now I know what, what what I was seeing that I didn't know I was seeing. But you know, it's like watching history but you don't know it's big history. And uh, that was a great year. Best year, you know. But the other thing you were talking about the baseball, a lot of times when you go to baseball games, first of all a lot of times people got season seats, even out there in the, in the, you know, in the outfield, people got season seats. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times people, even when you first get there, you you make, you make relationships that happens in the stands with the fans and all. And I don't know, sometimes maybe the guy was teasing the kid in the beginning of the game that, you know, Oh, you got Aaron Judd shirt on. You know what I mean? You, you know what I'm talking about? The yeah, today. right. Absolutely. That could happen. The other thing when you were talking about the, the gloves, just this week, my son took his kids to go see the Patriots out here in uh, New Somerset. Jersey. Oh, great! And, and he and he and he says, and you know, 
one's one's going to be ten, the other one's eight. And he says, oh, he says, Harrison got a whole batch of autographs, but you know where he got them? He said, where? On his gloves. So $70 later, I'm buying a new glove, breaking it in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because the kid ain't going to play with, with the autographs on his gloves now. So that was the other. The other thing when you talk about the salary, you know, this is when this is this is one thing why I don't like going to sporting events too much now. Uh, I go because of the kids. I love seeing their eyes and all, but but I think they're really ripping us off. Oh yeah, well I would agree, and um, that was one of the nice things to see at the Ferry Hawks game the other day, with the exception of the uh, two Moscow mules that I purchased for my wife, one of which was spilled, one of which was wasted. The prices were very reasonable. First of all, the uh, price of a ticket for the game is super inexpensive, and even parking for the whole night was only was only five dollars. So I, I think you, uh, you, I think you're exactly right, and that's one of the things that I, I I'm not really that eager to go to major league games anymore because of that well that's the five dollar table that, that that's what that's your triple a and all these little ballparks now that we never had before that's the five dollar table you go to atlantic city you got the hundred dollar table but you want to know something there's only people who could pay five dollars at blackjack and we'll get we'll get you five dollars too and that's what i call that i call that the five dollar table yeah well hey you're, you're on to something there hey i know that at least at one point in his managerial career leo derocher if i'm remembering correctly he did like connie mack did and didn't wear a uniform when he was with the cubs in the 60s did he wear a uniform with the cubs yeah, yeah. oh he did because i know when he was with the dodgers and they they yeah, I know. So the big thing with him was he like went from the Giants to the Dodgers. And, right. No, I remember. Know, it's a movie star. Yeah. He was like you know, uh, you know, he was he was you know, you know, flamboyant sports guy back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, not the only one, but he was he was one. I know if you if you watch the Jackie Robinson movie uh, Forty Two, they even point out that uh, DeRocher didn't wear a uniform at least at, in that season with the um, with the Dodgers. Uh, oh, no, no, it wasn't DeRocher. Excuse me. It was the fellow that took over for DeRocher. It was Burt Schotten. Uh, Burt Schotten, like Connie Mack, did not wear a uh, a uniform. So I, I misspoke. I think, yeah, believe it or not, you know, to to the caller's point about Leo DeRocher, he was so flamboyant and such a character that they suspended him for having an extramarital affair. Can you imagine them doing that today? Imagine. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to talk uh, uh, Atlantic City with David Pena in just a minute. Uh, Artie, though, is in Westchester. He's been holding. Hello, Artie. Arnie? Ah, uh, no, it's Artie. I'm afraid. Mm. I don't know. Neither do I. Hold on. Neither do I. So anyway, right. well, I'll put you back on hold. You can. Talk to Philippe. Right. Maybe he'll adjust your name accordingly. Kenny is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Kenny. Yeah, how you doing? I just wanted to share an anecdote that I had read about Aaron Judge in the newspaper some time ago. I don't remember the exact point in time, but it was an endearing story. Supposedly, he was an orphan, and he was like maybe eight, nine, ten years old. I don't remember the exact age. But at one point, he's obviously Hispanic or, or, or mixed with, with uh, some Hispanic heritage. And he didn't look like his parents. But at one point, he said to them, 
I don't understand something. I don't look like you guys. And that's when they told me was an orphan. And I just, you know, wanted to share that anecdote to show how a person from that background can become such an endearing, benevolent yeah, type You know, th- that's so interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that, Kenny. I'm going to look into that. But um, well, I, I read I, it in the paper. No, I, I believe you. I'm not I'm not disputing. Unlike Carol's version of claiming to see Nolan Ryan pitch a no-hitter with the Mets, uh, something that they didn't do until the year 2012 with Johan Santana, I'm not questioning your version of events at all, Kenny. Uh, but... Um, that is interesting. I didn't know that, if that's the case. All right. Those of you that are holding, uh, whether you're Ernie, whether you're Artie, we'll get to you. But uh, we're going live to Atlantic City straight ahead. Frank Marano, 77, this is the AC Report. They blew up a chicken man in Philly last night And they blew up his house too Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight Gonna see what them racket boys can do Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up Ah, yes, it is our time to go live to Atlantic City, one of the most interesting places in the world for every reason, uh, because there's no place that has dining like uh, Atlantic City, no place that has nightlife like Atlantic City, no place that has gambling like Atlantic City. There's no place that has characters in every walk of life uh, from policemen to politicians like Atlantic City. And one of those great Atlantic City characters has been David Pena. And what he has done over the course of the last decade, in my view, has been nearly heroic. Uh, Ten years ago, if you remember what was happening in Atlantic City, there was five casinos that closed within one year. Thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs gone instantly. Tens of thousands of taxpayers gone instantly. And all the money that they bring with them into the city gone instantly. And there was a lot of speculation all over the country about whether Atlantic City could even continue. One fella that believed in Atlantic City throughout that entire time was David Pena. He is a legendary nightlife impresario and the owner of Boogie Nights and Planet Rose at the Tropicana in Atlantic City. The, the Boogie Nights Club at the Trop is now celebrating its 10-year anniversary, and that's 10 years that has included uh, some really tough times for Atlantic City, not the least of which has been COVID, and it's great to see he's still standing along with Atlantic City. David, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Happy anniversary. Thank you so much, and happy Cinco de Mayo to you and your audience. Frank, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. 
And thank you for the great hype up. I appreciate that. Hey. And, you know, actually, I have been around, around Atlantic City for a long time. Atlantic City is my new home. I'm originally from New York. And uh, so it's, it's a very exciting time right now in Atlantic City. But I wanted to thank you really, you know, from the bottom of my heart and a lot of people in Atlantic City. We always talk about this. The fact that you put a spotlight and you focus on Atlantic City at least once a week means the world to us down here because we love the connection between New York. We obviously, you know, have our customers coming from New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey. Uh, but it, but it's, it's really cool that you actually put a focus on the city and not just the casinos necessarily, but you're, you're exactly right. The, all the characters that make up Atlantic City because it really is a cool location. And I, I find it my new home for sure. I've been here many years, but I've decided Atlantic City is always going to, you know, be where I do business. It's also going to be, I live on the ocean right next to the Tropicana Casino. So I can't beat that. I work here. I love the atmosphere here. I understand the rhythm of the city and it does definitely has a unique, you know, quality. It's not a cookie cutter city or town. And that's what right. I, you know, I love about it. You Same. know, it's got its ups and its downs and whatever, but it is what it is. Same. I uh, couldn't agree more. All right, uh, David, for there are a lot of people listening to us who go to Atlantic City regularly. There's a lot of people listening to us around the country and around the world that have either never been to Atlantic City or haven't been in some time. And that they all of the people that I'm just describing, they may not have been to Boogie Nights. What exactly is Boogie Nights? Remind us. Yes, absolutely. Boogie Nights is the ultimate 70s, 80s and 90s dance club. And we're located at Tropicana Casino in Atlantic City. We've been there and we're celebrating our 10 years this year. We had a big uh, three-night blowout last week, which was fantastic. Uh, headlining was Tiffany, who helped us celebrate our 10-year anniversary. She was with us when we first opened at Tropicana. So it was a very meaningful um, event. Uh, Tiffany for me. From, and- from Blondie. Oh, no, Tiffany, who sings, I think we're alone Oh, now. yes, of course, yes. yes I'm sorry. Pop yes. icon of uh, the 80s. So she was sweet enough to come out. But Boogie Nights is is a, a, is a, is a, for those who haven't been there, you can go to BoogieNightsAC.com. And I could paint the picture. It is, uh, we got a light-up dance floor. We have probably the largest disco ball you have ever seen in your life. We have a great light show, great sound system. And basically the idea is we take everything great from the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, and we try to, you know, um, go over the top by, uh, and you know, you know, kind of not I would say exploiting, but you know, taking all the qualities, whether it's fashion, uh, the the music, the styles, um, the energy of those those great decades, because they really were some of the most colorful times in the music industry, the fashion industry. It's when we we we, we had Madonnas and Michael Jacksons and stuff like that. So we give you that retro nostalgic feeling. As a matter of fact, if you look on the video screens, we have you know we we want to make sure that you're hearing that you're hearing the uh, nostalgia, but at the same time, it's at a contemporary pace. We have great DJs. Uh, we have characters, which separates us really from a lot of the nightclubs. I always call it Studio Fifty Four meets Disneyland. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because it it is very colorful. It's a very fun atmosphere. Um, and and the characters are Roller Girl, Mr. Boogie. Uh, they take pictures with, uh, you know, with the Boogie Beaver. We have celebrities that are constantly showing up there or even performing there at Boogie Nights that you remember hearing on the radio in New York, for sure. Um, and we try to give you that, that uh, ex- you know, the whole escapism experience because, uh, you know, you figure you're driving in from New York or, you know, coming down for the weekend. You, you've saved up for the week and you want to go to a nice dinner. You want to see a show. 
And I feel like Boogie Nights gives you that escapism because everybody walks out of there feeling happy, excited. And I, I hope we, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons for our longevity. Boogie Nights is really catered to the customers and we, 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 we ask them what they want and we kind of read the crowd really well. And we always make sure that we look them in the eye, we smile, we give them the best experience they could possibly have in a nightclub. And we really, uh, you know, go out of our way to do it. I think the customers appreciate it and it becomes like this loyal following. I get all excited when I hear somebody from White Plains, New York or Manhattan or the Bronx or Long Island reaching out to us and saying, we come down there specifically to go to Boogie Nights. And I understand why, because it really is that you can spend three hours there and you felt like you had a full vacation and, and a memory that lasts forever. So hopefully we deliver that. And I think that's why we have people coming back and we're grateful for it. So I want to invite everybody in New York and everywhere else listening in, uh, out there to please come by uh, Atlantic City, uh, stop by Tropicana and definitely experience Boogie Nights. We're open every Thursday and Friday, Saturday night, uh, every every week. And we, um, we have a big one coming up tonight. We have Cinco de Boogie. And then tomorrow night, we have our every first Friday of the month, we do something that's extremely popular. It's called the Cougars and Cubs Ball. <laughs> so we, 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 we crown a Cougar of the Month and a Cub of the Month. And it's a lot of fun. And believe it or not, it's our, one of our more popular events. And it's consistent. And people can count on seeing that. And then uh, on uh, Saturday, we have our world-famous Hot Moms Contest, which we do every year in honor of Mother's Day. Now, if somebody wants to be considered for the Cougar or Cub of the of the of the evening or the week or, um, yeah. or one of the hot moms, how do they submit their resume for consideration? <laughs> well, they just have to be at the club one. And uh, we have our MCs and our characters wandering through. So Roller Girl might be coming at you. Our MCs might be coming at you. And you could just actually uh, talk to them and say, hey, I'd like to enter the contest. And, every, you know, everybody's welcome to enter the contest. It's so, it's so much fun. The first year we did the Hot Moms contest, we don't do it anymore because of for the sake of time. But we used to have them do like motherly chores, like make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, fold, <laughs> do some laundry. Uh, we, I remember one time we had Michael Jackson over a lady's lap and she had to discipline him by spanking him. It was fantastic. It was it was, it was one of those weird, weird experiences. But now we, we just have them really dance it off and just, you know, show their personality. And uh, the crowd really gives us their reaction. And it's a lot of fun. And it's innocent fun, too, which is cool. Uh, now, um, if um, so, would you say because the music is more seventies, eighties, and nineties themed, that the crowd at Boogie Nights tends to be a bit more mature than some of the other nightclubs in Atlantic City? Good question. Uh, when we first started, that was the case, and uh, we we definitely we were you know we 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 had the middle aged crowd, but. Now we are, we have probably some of the youngest crowds we've ever had, and I think that's because Tropicana offers a lot of great amenities. Whether it's restaurant dining, um, it's like the capital of bachelor bachelorette parties. So there's and birthdays. So there's a lot of celebratory events. Um, but it, we we are seeing in, in when we first came back after the pandemic. And thank you very much for having me on, too, because I was I think you could hear it in my voice. I was a nervous wreck before opening. I always get I'm always feel like, you know, will anybody show up to the party? And then I was, you know, pleasantly surprised when everybody was there and it was the packed night. Um, and I think, you know, you know, after that time period. It gave us like a, a good gauge. We were like, okay, it's going to be busy for the first few months. Atlantic City had a lot of volume going on. Everybody just wanted to get out of the house. But that could fizzle out. It's can you go the distance? 
And what happened was we were snowballing. And since, since actually hanging out with you on New Year's Eve, by the way, thank you for that party. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it just continued to go up and up, but I kept looking at it and the crowds, there was new crowds coming in. We have Stockton University that's also, uh, has a campus in, in Atlantic city, but the crowds were just getting uh, to be all ages. And right. it, what's cool about that is what I love, one of my favorite things to see, and I see this all the time, somebody gets a VIP booth, a bottle of champagne or whatever it might be, their daughter or, or, or somebody just turned 21. And they're able to party with their aunts, their uncles, their family. Just last week was my daughter at the 10-year anniversary. And it almost made me cry. I'm dancing with my daughter on the light-up dance floor. She's been around Boogie Nights since she was a little girl in Atlantic City. She knows every showgirl, every casino dealer, uh, all the security. Everybody knows Lily. So, of course, I had security all watch her the night. But, and and uh, it, was, it was just great because all the different generations could go and party together. And that... That, to me, is a very rare thing that you, you, you see happening specifically in nightclubs. And I, 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 I cherish those moments for sure. Now, um, in, in terms of Atlantic City more generally, by the way, if people yeah. are just tuning in, we're talking with David Pena. He is the owner of Boogie Nights, which is at the Trop, and a great karaoke bar, which is one of my favorites, called Planet Rose, which is also at the Trop. In terms of Atlantic City more um, more generally, what goes on on yeah. a day like today? Uh, aside from what you're doing at uh, at Boogie Nights, where do you dine on Cinco de Mayo? Where do you go for drinks on uh, on Cinco de Mayo? How do you throw yourself into the fun and revelry of a Cinco de Mayo event? You know, that's, that's a great question. There is a, um, I, 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 forgive me for not remembering the name, but it's been around forever. It's, uh, it's near Bally's, uh, just not coming to the top of my head right now, but that there's a beautiful local uh, Mexican restaurant that I go to all the time. And I think all locals as, as well as visitors know it very well. well it's on the boardwalk. It's on the boardwalk. No, it's off the boardwalk right near where Ruth Chris is uh, you know, at the walk. Uh, you know, I think our mutual friend AC Mike has, uh, has told me about that, uh, that, that, yeah. that spot, but you know what spot? And I haven't been there and I do want to check it out and I'm going to look at yeah. the name. Is it, um, is it El Tecate? Uh, it, no, I don't think that. No, is. okay, well, so be. Or, or it could be Los Compadres. Los Compadres? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's, you know, there's. You can't a, miss it. It's the most colorful, uh, like, uh, exterior on the, on the, I believe it's Atlantic Avenue. There is a terrific. Um, Mexican place actually in the trout, at least I think it's terrific, called uh, Casa Taco and Tequila Bar. That has really become one of my go-to spots. Do, do you go there at all? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, anytime I do a late night, I like to treat myself to a nice breakfast at Trop, and I go there all the time. They have a fantastic brunch. As a matter of fact, Mother's Day is coming up, so not only Cinco de Mayo is a great time to go there, and I'm sure it'll be packed, uh, but also Mother's Day, too. And you know what, uh, you know, Frank, one of the things, I've lived in Atlantic City close to 20 years, uh, or at least the outskirts of Atlantic City, I'm seeking, and Atlantic City, you know, proper now. Um, and my one of my one of my uh, projects for this year personally is to explore Atlantic City outside of the casinos and try to discover new places and restaurants. Yeah, I, I I'm. Uh, by the way, is it Los Amigos? It might be Los Amigos. Los Amigos. Yeah, that okay. is it. Correct. That's it. I, I've yeah. not been there, but I passed it. I'm looking at the um, the outside, and it fits your description. And it has been voted best yeah. tequila and rum bar in Atlantic City repeatedly. But I'm so glad that you mentioned that because one of the great mistakes that I think a lot of people that listen to this segment make is that they visit Atlantic City and they'll go to whatever casino they enjoy going to. Sometimes they'll even casino shop 
uh, Casino Hop, rather, but they don't step outside. They'll go to Trop, they'll play at Trop, they'll eat at Takasa Taco and Tequila Bar, then they'll sing karaoke at Planet Rose and then go dance at Boogie Nights. Uh, maybe they'll see a movie in the uh, IMAX theater there, but they don't step outside and appreciate the um, the, the rest of the, the grandeur and the incredible things happening in the 48 blocks of Atlantic City. Now, I've asked people about this, and I've said it on the radio, and repeatedly, I have been told that the reason some people don't enjoy walking around Atlantic or Pacific Avenue or the Orange Loop, Tennessee Avenue and so forth, is because they think there's a problem with crime. As somebody right. that lives there, as somebody that works there, give it to us straight. Is Atlantic City um, an unsafe city? Is it a city that you would feel unsafe walking around in? I'd say it's a city like any city that you have to be cautious in. Uh, what helps is, I'm, you know, I'm from New York originally, so I always got eyes in the back of my head. I'm always looking at my you know, through my peripheral, I always see my surroundings. And it really is a question of, I mean, so for people that, you know, it is a good idea to, you know, to, to, you know, walk the boards on, in the daytime when it's, you know, you know light out and um, really also kind of zone in on the places you might want to go see. So therefore you can Uber, take a cab over and there's, you know, a certain, maybe there's two or three blocks of great restaurants or, you know, a new movie theater that just opened in Ventnor and local places around that area. I, my suggestion would be to definitely, you know, take some transportation in the evening time and kind of have a ballpark of where you're going and yeah. uh, what you want to see and what you want to do. But yeah, like any city, there, there's absolutely, you know, you always have to be alert. Um, but I, I think, you know, for the most part, I mean, the volumes of people coming through, especially in the summertime, it's there is something called strength in numbers. So the, the busier Atlantic City gets, I think, the more it's right. Also That's a good point. Police and uh, and also other uh, other people aware of, you know, their surroundings. And, you know, you, it, that's why I always felt comfortable in Manhattan, too. And, that you know, Same. on a busy weekend in Atlantic City, I feel very comfortable because there is everybody is alert and uh, well it looks like we're um, it looks like we're in store for a very busy uh, Atlantic City season uh, for the summer and I'm looking yeah. forward to uh, spending a lot of time with you there this summer as well uh, David it is always a treat to talk with you thanks for joining me on the radio congratulations you, on your 10-year anniversary want to encourage everybody to check out both boogie nights and planet Rose when they're in town good luck thank, thank you so much I'll see you AC Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Don't forget, coming up at 4 a.m., we are going to allow you an opportunity to tell a joke. Now, and I think we will give a prize out for the best joke. So you got two chances to win prizes in the 4 o'clock hour, including potentially $1,000. But um, come armed with a decent joke, and we'll collectively determine which was the the best joke that we hear at 4 o'clock. Extra points for originality, any kind of joke. It's got to be a joke we can say on the radio. So obviously you keep your racist jokes somewhat to a minimum. If there, if it's a sex joke, try to make it a mild sex joke. Uh, but other than that, you know, anything's fair game. Knock-knock joke, whatever. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Your calls in just a moment. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
See, this is actually Tiffany, um, who we were just talking about. Uh, 800-848-WABC, if you want to um, comment on any portion of my interview with David Pena. Uh, if you ever want to know what music we play on this show, join the Facebook group. Uh, just go on Facebook and type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. I'd also be curious if you wanted to give a review to the debate that we had in the 2 o'clock hour. I hate to v- frame debates in this context of who won and who lost. But um, if you because ideally, I think it's great when you can learn something from both sides of a debate. But if you have thoughts, uh, go to the Facebook group and let let me know uh, what you thought of that, because if you liked it, you will do more segments like that. And if you didn't like it, maybe we'll we'll do more segments like that anyway. Uh, so just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook and uh, you can join our Facebook group. Now, I really have to thank. Our owners, uh, John and Margot Katsimatidis, yesterday, so this Sunday is my wife's first Mother's Day. We've been talking about what we're going to do, and it looks like she wants to have a picnic. And I'm wondering, is there anything else that I should be doing? And I was planning on probably just getting her flowers or something. Well, lo and behold, yesterday afternoon, this gorgeous, beautiful bouquet of flowers comes to our house. Turns out. And I just take it because, you know, I didn't know who it was from. I put it on the kitchen table. My wife looks at it. She's blown away at the grandeur of this bouquet. It turns out it's from John and Margot Katsimatidis to my wife, Rachel. Happy Mother's Day. I mean, that is really extraordinary. And, you know, I've worked for a lot of people over the years and a lot of different companies, some good, some not so good. I have never worked for a company where the owners of the radio station – uh, or any company that I was at would do something like that. And it's really, even though this is where one cog in a multi-billion dollar company, this really is a, a, a family. And it, they, John and Margot, as great as they are, they view this as a family-run business. We were really very touched that um, that they sent that bouquet. So if either John or Margot is listening, which I know they often do at this time, thank you both. Uh, 800-848-WABC. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Hmm. Um, I think it's good to get into these um, phrase between like Ukraine and Russia, because uh, had Roosevelt got in early when Hitler got into power, the Treaty of Versailles would have been enforced and Hitler wouldn't have been able to rearm so much. And maybe there would have been no World War Two. All right. Well, thank you, John. All right. Let me hear your jokes. 800-848-9222. And... There's some controversy in the world of Jeopardy. We're going to talk about that in just a bit as well. Additionally, uh, we're going to give away $1,000 at 4.30. At least we're going to try if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. I'll tell you what's coming up on the Bernie and Sid show, and we got a whole lot more coming to you. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, make sure to remember that your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, 
everybody. Occasionally on this program, we need to give you an opportunity to help give the audience a break. What does that mean? Well, you look uh, on um, one channel, there's discussion about abortion. That is not an upbeat subject. You look on another channel, there's a a, um, a discussion about war crimes in Ukraine. There, That is not an upbeat subject. You look on another channel, there's discussion about crime in New York or crime in America. That is not an upbeat subject. So sometimes you just need a break from all this stuff. And you just need to laugh. And sometimes you need to laugh because the attempts to make one laugh are so weak that it's funny. So occasionally on this program, we ask listeners to call in with a joke. Could be any kind of joke. Could be a uh, knock-knock joke. Could be a degree of comparison joke. You know, what's a do- I don't even know if that's what the proper way to call it. I wish, you know, next comedian that we have um, come in here, I'm going to ask how to refer to those jokes. Because I love those jokes. Um, you know, one of the, the jokes that I'm talking about are, um, oh, boy, it's cold out. How cold is it? Well, I mean, it's cold out. It's so cold that, um, you know, politicians are sticking their hands into their own pockets. I mean, it's cold. You know, <laughs> how cold is it? I mean, it's cold. It's so cold that uh, Chris Christie is uh, staying off the beach, you know. Stuff like that is kind of weak. All right. Uh, you get it. I don't know what those jokes are called, but those are among my favorite jokes. Uh, all right. 800-848-9222. And we'll, you know what we'll do to sweeten the pot? I think I'm authorized to do this. We will give you a The Other Side of Midnight baseball cap from the WABC radio store. Whoever has the funniest joke. We'll determine the the four of us, myself. Matt Blaze, Philippe, and Alex Barnard, which of you has the funniest joke? We'll give, I don't know, we'll do this for 10 minutes or so. And if anybody has a good joke within that 10 minutes, that's who we'll give the, the cap to. Tom is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Happy Cinco de Mayo, Frank. Very good to see you. Anyway, um, this guy walks into the doctor's office on Friday and says, Hey, Doc, I've got three dates this weekend. Could you hook me up with some Viagra? The doctor says, No worries, I got you. Same guy comes in on Monday, his hand, his arm is in a sling. The guy, doctor says, what happened? He goes, none of my dates showed up. <laughs> okay, that's not bad. I like it. I like it. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hello. Hey, Frank Camaro. Happy hey. Cinco de Mayo. Likewise. Uh, I got three quick ones for you. Okay. Why couldn't the pony sing a lullaby? I give up. Because she was a little horse. Okay, okay, that's that's funny. A ham sandwich walks into a bar, orders a beer. The bartender says to the ham sandwich, sorry, we're not serving food. <laughs> okay, that's a little better. I like that one a little more. And, and this is the final one. The biggest joke ever is he's in the White House right now, Joe Biden. Have a good night, Frank. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Robert in Manhattan, what do you have for us? Good morning. When morning. Barry Farber, the late Barry Farber told me this, I laughed all night. Okay. A Jewish couple named Rosenberg win the New York lottery, 
and they're so rich that they can hire themselves a real English butler, someone who looks like Alfred Pennyworth out of Batman. They don't even know his name. They call him Jeeves. One day afternoon, Mrs. Rosenberg says, Jeeves, we're expecting our best friends, the Weinbergs, for dinner. Please set places for four. So she bustles around the house, and about quarter to six, she walks into the dining room, and she looks around, and she looks around, got a peculiar face on, look on her face. Jeeves, she says, come in here. Yes, Mum. Didn't I tell you that we were expecting our best friends, the Weinbergs, to set places for four at six? Yes, Mum. Well, unless I'm seeing double, how come I'm seeing places for eight? Oh, Mum, I was about to tell you that. Your friend, Mrs. Weinberg, called, and she said she and her husband are coming. And they're bringing the bagels and the bialis. <laughs> Spectacular! Uh, that's not bad. That's uh, not bad, Robert. Thank you. That's good anti-wasp humor, right? Uh, Ray is in Woodhaven. Hello, Ray. A guy walks into a talent scout's office and says, I've got the greatest actor you've ever seen. So the talent scout says, I've heard that a million times. He goes, no, 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 really. He reaches in his pocket, takes out a little tiny piano, reaches in his other pocket, and takes out a little man. Seeks the man at the piano, and the guy starts playing classical, rock, jazz. Talent scout says, this is unbelievable. Where'd you find this guy? And so I was walking along the beach, kicked the bottle, genie popped out, said I could have whatever I wanted. <laughs> Talent scout says, you asked for a 12-inch pianist? And the guy says, no, the genie was hard of hearing. <laughs> I have heard one that one before, Ray. That's a good one. I knew that where that one was going. You know, that reminds me of um, it's less of a joke and more of a, a true anecdote. Uh, this is back in the days when Johnny Carson was hosting The Tonight Show. You know, his producer in those days towards the end uh, were and a good portion of the time that Johnny was there was Fred DeCordova. And Fred DeCordova would have all these people trying to get booked on The Tonight Show all day. And then this fella comes into Fred DeCordova's office with his dog. And he says to Fred, you know, Fred, I've got the smartest dog in the world. You've got to book him for The Tonight Show. Well, you know, we do animal acts with people like Jim Fowler and others. But, you know, we kind of have our whole routine. No, 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 no. You don't understand. This dog's not just smart. This dog talks. All right. Well, that's interesting. Well, let's see him talk. So the guy turns to his uh, dog. He says, Rusty. Um, what is, um, how would you describe sandpaper? And the dog says, rough. Then he says to the dog, Rusty, what's on top of the building where we are? He says, roof. And then he says, Rusty, if, if you had to pick, who would you say the best baseball player of all time is? And he says, Ruth. And then Fred at this point says, all right, I've seen enough of this. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to deal with charlatans like you. I have people trying to come into this office all day long and get booked on the show. He throws the guy and his dog out. At that point, they're out. They're kicked out on the street. And the dog uh, turns to his owner and he says, DiMaggio? Uh, Frank on Long Island. Hello. Hey, Frank. I love the show. You're keeping me alive, bro. Thank you. Hey, uh. How do you? How can you tell if a physicist is also an extrovert? I give up. He stares at your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad, Frank. Not bad. Um, Fred is in Yonkers. This is going to be interesting. Hello, Fred. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Did you hear about this this geometry teacher? She got in trouble for teaching her kids the chief. Sokotoa song. Sokotoa, Sokotoa. I didn't think she was trying to be racist. 
She just was born under a bad sign. Ah, uh, see, yeah, I knew it was going to be a punny joke, Fred. Not bad. Okay, uh, you got to like puns, which fortunately I do. Al is in Amityville. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. I just got up. The time it was beautiful. I just had some had some coffee. But anyway, this guy goes to the doctor. He has a very high pitched voice. He goes, Doctor. Every everyone looks at me. They laugh at me. I have no friends. What could you do about it? So he goes into the examination room, he, did, he unrobes, and the doctor says, boy, you're very well endowed. He says, uh, you must have a lot of girlfriends. He says, oh, my God, they're knocking down the door. They're calling me up 24 hours a day. He says, that's your problem. If you remove half of it, you'll have a normal voice. So a week later, he comes back. He hugs the doctor. He goes, doctor, my voice, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to be in public now. The only thing is, the girls don't call me up anymore. Is there anything you could do? He goes, I don't know if I could do it. I can. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad, Al. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank. All right, this comes to us via a guy you might know. For 20 years, he did a psychology show, Armand DeMille. He passed away a while ago. A while ago. Mm-hmm. You know my name. All right, so he told this joke. So Einstein was home having his, his, his driveway repaved. And then his wife hears him yelling at the kids. Is honey? What she says? What are you yelling? You love children. What are you doing? He goes, I love children in the abstract, not in the concrete. <laughs> but, uh... Paul in Newark. Hello. Uh, these two Irish guys walk into a. Uh, they walk out of a bar. It could happen. <laughs> I've told that joke myself once or twice. See, I can tell that joke because my wife is of Irish descent and so is my son. That's one of the reasons I married someone that had both Irish and Jewish heritage so that I could make jokes of all persuasions. Dino's in Ohio. Hello. Uh, yeah, what did the Mexican guy tell the IRS about his taxes? I give up. No obligation. No abla. What's the last part? Obligation. Oh, obligation. Okay. That's not bad. Not bad. David is in Yonkers. Hello. Yeah. So uh, just married couple, honeymooners, and the groom wakes up in the middle of the night and uh, he sees his uh, bride with a flashlight reading a piece of paper. Honey, what's going on? She says, I'm reading our marriage license. In the middle of the night, why why are you reading a marriage license? I'm looking for the expiration date. (laughs) (laughs) Todd in Maplewood. Yeah, what's the difference between a Jew and a canoe? Between a what and a canoe? A Jew. Oh, boy. Uh, What? A canoe chips. Oh, (laughs) boy. He doesn't deserve a rim shot for that. We're going to get letters for that one. Anthony in Edison, hello. Yes, good morning, Frank. I start my shift with you every morning. I always appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, my my joke is uh, what is what is the world's most uh, what is the world's most famous Jewish wine? Uh, it's what? I want to go to Florida. <laughs> I've heard that one before. Actually, that doesn't seem as mean spirited as the canoe one. Sean is in Park Ridge. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I got a good one here. Um, a woman walks into a library, and it's packed, filled with students. And she says to the librarian, um, I'll have a cheeseburger, french fries, and a Coke in a really loud voice. 
and a librarian is disgusted, and she looks at her, and she says, this is a library. And the woman looks around, and she notices everybody, and she says, I'll have a cheeseburger, french fries, and a Coke. (laughs) Well done, Sean. Larry and Beth Page. A police officer observes a man near one of our local parks grab a duck from around the lake. The, The gentleman... Now has the duck in his car and he's driving away. The police officer pulls him over and says to the gentleman, sir, you can't, you can't take that duck. What I want you to do is I want you to take the duck to the park right now. Yes, sir, I'll do that. A little while later, the officer sees the same guy with the same duck in the car. Pulls him over again, sir, you didn't follow my instructions. I told you to take the duck to the park. The guy looks at the cop and he says, Officer, I followed your instructions. I took the duck to the park. Now we're going out for lunch. <laughs> John in Connecticut, hello. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Morning. Why can't an oriental couple have a Caucasian baby? Oh, boy. I give up. Two wongs don't make a white. Ooh, ooh. Um, yeah, you should connect him with the uh, the fellow that made the canoe joke. Greg is in Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hello, how you doing? Good. Hey, why do Italian guys grow mustaches? I give up. They look like their mothers. Oh! Ouch. Burgess on the Upper Easy side. Burgess? All right. Well, Burgess has other priorities. Steve in Manhattan. All right. You take Russell from White Plains' brain, you put in a bird's head, the bird would fly backwards. Is that the whole joke? Is that the punchline and the yeah, setup? It's the joke, yeah. That's the whole joke. I, I'm in hysterics. Jack in Manhattan. Jack. How are you? Good. The, this woman goes into the hospital. She has to have a leg amputated. Doctor takes her to the OR, he amputates the wrong leg. He has to now take off the other leg. The woman has no legs left, so she sues him. Gets into court, the judge immediately throws it out. The lawyer says, how could you possibly throw this case out? The judge looks at him and says, she doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Richie is in North Jersey. Hello. Hey, how you doing there? Great show you have. Thanks. Uh, I just... Uh, why was the snowman smiling? I give up. He heard the snowblower coming. <laughs> I think we better uh, make these our final three. Alan is in the Bronx. Hello. Yes, yes uh, Frank. It's um, So this guy goes for happy ever every day to this uh, local uh, tavern. And so he goes in every day and orders two, um, two um, um, whiskey and Cokes. So goes in, you know, every day for years, two whiskey cokes every day. So comes in one day after many years um, uh, and orders uh, one uh, whiskey and coke. The bartender's, huh? What happened? Why only one whiskey and coke? Or actually, uh, sorry, he's so he, why is he drinking two whiskey and cokes? He drinks one for himself and one for his friend he lost in Vietnam. So he, uh, one day, why are you only get drinking one uh, one whiskey and coke today? He says, I quit drinking. 
<laughs> okay, uh, that's not bad. I feel like if the delivery was a little bit better, we would have been there. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Yeah, it's uh, my neighbor's daughter is trying to show the mother the new boyfriend. She looks at him, long hair, piercings, tattoos, just not so good. He walks down the stairs, leaves. She says, then what do you think? What do you think? She goes, well, I don't think he's too nice. And she goes, Ma, if he's not so nice, why is he doing 500 hours of community service? <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, we'll try again with Burgess, and now on the lower east side. Hello, Burgess. Hi, um, it's Bridget Wallace. Um, I'm on the Upper East Side, actually. Ah. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to, to uh, tell you about these three very elderly in their nineties living together. Uh, so, so we'll leave the uh, the, uh, the eldest lady at the top of the stairs. I'm going to take a bath. So then, in a few minutes, she shouts down. She said, "I can't remember whether I was going into the bath or out of the bath." So the second sister says, "Hold on, now I'll be right up." So then. The, the sister was walking up the stairs, you know, she was halfway up. She said, I can't remember whether I was going up the stairs or down the stairs. So then the last sister, she was sitting there uh, on her own, you know, and she's, she's talking to herself and she said, my God, I'm so glad I'm not like those two. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then she said, touch wood. And she banged on the, on the table, you know, on the wooden table, you know. And uh, so... so uh, it was like so. So she said. So she shut up. I'll have to wait a few minutes now. There's somebody at the door. <laughs> That's pretty good, Bridget. I think we. Uh, I like that one. I, I like that one. Even though uh, Ted DiBiase tried to step on your your punchline there, Mike in Pennsylvania. Hello. Real quick, uh, when uh, Ricky, what did Ricky Martin tell his boyfriend when J Lo and Mark Anthony broke up? I give up. Those mixed marriages don't work. <laughs> That's not bad. Wilfred in New Jersey, hello. Wilfred? Wilfred? Oh, it's me. Okay, look. There's this girl lives in the city. She's really pretty. And she's talking to her friend and said, hey, don't get a, she wanted to get a nude painting of herself. So she said, don't do it here. Go to in a little, little town somewhere and just get a guy to paint it. So she went out there. She went to this. Painter, who never, since she said, uh, I want to get a painting, a new painting for myself. So he said, oh, I've never done that before. He said, but look, I'll give you $100 just to give me this new painting. So he said, okay, I have to go home and talk to my wife to see what she says. So she goes home, talks to his wife, and they settle it. So she he comes back, and the next day the girl's there ready to get the painting, and she, he said, well, I can do the, do the nude painting, but my I have to leave my socks on. <laughs> That's not bad, Wilford. All right. <laughs> we had a good variety there. Um, do you have any favorites, Matt Blaze? Matt Blaze is uh, he's shrugging. Uh, Philippe, do you have any favorites? Yeah, I liked, uh, I liked Greg from Ohio, the Italians growing mustaches. Okay, yeah, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. Um Oh, just one or no? No, yeah. Go ahead. Give, give me what else you got. Um, Paul from New Jersey. The Irish bar joke was good. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really know, overplayed. 
overplayed. I mean, maybe because I tell that joke, I feel like everybody already knows that. But go ahead. What else? And did you uh, like? I think straight from like a, a joke writing standpoint, I think Jeff from Queens, the Children in the Abstract. Yeah, that I was not that, bad. I that was a good, yeah, I have well that on my list. Alex Barnard, did you have a vote as to what you liked there? And and he can't talk to us from where he is. I really liked okay. um, the the guy with the high pitched voice. Yeah, that wasn't bad. Is that your favorite? Yeah, um, I wrote that one down. Hang on, uh, let me find out who it is real quick. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. We'll tell uh, that person to uh, to call back. I, yeah. I like the I like the Rosenberg uh, Weinberg Butler joke. I like the uh, marriage expiration date joke. I also like the high pitched voice joke. What was your first one, Philippe? Oh, you was the the abstract. I also like the. Um, I like puns, so I like the um, Sokoa born under a bad sign. Um, Matt Blaze, any of the ones that we mentioned speak to you at all based on uh, what we heard, what you've heard so far? Would you want the, the one that Philip said? Philippe. The abstract? The abstract one? one. Yeah, okay. All right. So, yeah, like uh, I'll, I'll go along with that one. I like that one too. I had that like on my the list. Bar one? What, the, uh, the Irish, Irish bar? No. I mean, I like it. It's just I feel like it's why did the chicken cross the road? I feel like it's yeah, way true. too common. You know, um, I like it. It's just I, again, I tell the joke, but it's just it's just way too common. I like a joke with a little bit of a story. You know, those are those are the kind that are that are memorable. For instance, um, you know, so here, wh- whoever told that joke about the um, about the uh, born under a. Uh, no, about abstract. About, Jeff from Queens. Uh, Jeff from Queens. Jeff from Queens should call back, and we'll give him a, uh, a WABC cap. Call back, Jeff. 800-848-9222. Now, um, you know, I, like, one of my favorite, favorite stories to tell is when the Pope was in town last. I guess it's about four or five years ago. Pope Francis. And, you know, he's running around in his Pope mobile, and the Pope says to... The fella that's driving him around, he says, look, I know this is going to sound strange, but I've always had one ambition, one thing I've always really wanted to do in New York. And the driver says, what is that? He says, well, I've always wanted to drive the Pope Mobile. And the guy says, absolutely not. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble and I am not going to do that. And I refuse. You could get hurt. Not going to happen. So then the Pope says, Please, look, I'll absolve you of all your sins. I'll make sure you get into heaven. You'll never have to go to confession again. You're covered for life. And ultimately, the driver says, all right, fine. It's the Pope. I got to do what he says. Pulls over. The Pope starts driving. The guy gets in the back seat. The Pope immediately, and you know him, you know, he used to be a comedian or a bouncer, right? He's always had a little bit of a wild side to him. He starts speeding, starts speeding. And so then um, the police come and the guy that's supposed to be driving is now sitting in the back seat of the Pope mobile. He's got his head in his hands. He's just unbelievably chagrined at what, what what's about to happen. He thinks he's going to get in trouble. And so a police officer pulls over the Pope mobile, which is speeding, walks over to the driver and sees the Pope driving, walks immediately back to the police vehicle. And he says to his partner, I don't know what to do. I have somebody really, really powerful that uh, is that I don't know what to do. And so the guy says, well, what do you mean? You have somebody powerful. You got a congressman. The guy says, no, bigger, much bigger. He says, well, what, what, do you have a senator that you pulled over? No, bigger than that. He says, what do you mean bigger than that? You don't have the president, do you? 
He says, no, even bigger. He says, well, who do you have? He says, I don't know, but the guy's got the Pope driving him around. See, I like that. It's a story. Story. That's what I like. Um, but uh, Jeff in Queens, congratulations. You are the recipient of the new, of a brand new, uh, the other side of midnight baseball cap. So I hope you will wear it with pride, take a photograph, and post it in the Facebook group uh, at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Now, um, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. Just when the pri- the prizes just keep coming on this show. If you want to have an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then call right now to 1-800-848-9222. We're going to give you an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute. Now, I'll tell you, this might be the easiest quiz we've ever done. I went through every week, every day just about, I do a dry run of these questions with my wife to see if she can answer them in 60 seconds. And usually she can't. Usually there's one that trips her up. She got all of these. So if my wife were to call in, I don't think she's eligible, but she would win $1,000. If you want to play, be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. said it wasn't worth it forever don't deserve this i know we'll never get to learning because you're too busy turning me on i can hardly breathe when you're touching me can't believe this love when you beg and plead put me in the sheets Every night repeat Is this the way that we're getting closer? We're sipping on love and we're never sober Our bodies keep telling us it ain't over over again This is, is uh, this my friend Brielle Von Hugel who um, is one of the best singers in America one of the best singers in America and a great person You can see her every weekend uh, performing in Atlantic City, and uh, she's a great person as well. You probably saw her on American Idol. She has a cover of a Katy Perry song. This song is called Closure, which I really like. Uh, but she has a cover of a Katy Perry song that um, I believe it's the one that got away. This song, her version of that cover of that song, has been downloaded something like 50 million times. So, some insane number of downloads. And she's made a lot of money just with that song. And I I don't know I don't know that she would want me to tell you what I'm about to tell you. And I know her mother would not want me to tell you what I'm about to tell you. But as everyone who listens to the show is now well aware, I can't help myself. Right? When a thought occurs to me, it just pops out. Drives my wife crazy. Drives my wife crazy. Now Brielle so her mom had a bar that I used to go to, the Curly Wolf Saloon. Great bar. Great bar. I used to go there all the time. It's fun. And it closed, uh, you know, before before the pandemic, but shortly before the pandemic. You know, the price, commercial rent, this and that. Brielle, based on the proceeds of that song that, that she made, that Katy Perry song, 
she bought her mom a new bar. I mean, that's an incredible thing. You talk about a pretty impressive Mother's Day gift. So now the Curly Wolf Saloon happens to be reopened, and it's right by my house. And it helps that it's in walking distance, let me tell you. Now that Lent is over, I am making pretty good use of not having to drive to the Curly Wolf Saloon. All right. It is time for someone to try their hand at answering some questions and hopefully making some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, thank you, Chris Libertini. Joanne is in Asbury, New Jersey. Hello, Joanne. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm great. I really like Asbury Park. I was there the first day that New Jersey allowed outdoor dining. That was my first time there. Hung out on the beach. Beautiful beach. Went to a nice uh, restaurant. I think it was a Tim McClune restaurant. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I had a good time there. Went with my wife and my, my brother and his girlfriend. We had a great time. I'm glad that Asbury is on the other side of the state near Pennsylvania. Are you kidding? Wait, New no. Jersey has two communities? Uh, I figured this was – I mean, he called – he called, um, you know, a, a lady named um, uh, whatever Beatrice uh, Burgess before, and he said that she was on the Upper Easy Side and then the Lower East Side. So I figured you got just Philippe again. But there's an Asbury, New Jersey, and then there's an Asbury Park, New Jersey. That's correct. This is news to me. I have no idea. So what county is Asbury, New Jersey in? So it's actually in Warren County, and it's a small rural farming community. Wow. Do you have a farm? I do. What do you farm on there? Uh, we raise hay. We raise corn, soybeans. We have a flock of sheep, some chickens. Do you get eggs from the chickens? I do every day. So you're not really suffering with this eggflation that we're experiencing in grocery stores? <laughs> no, we're not. All right. Well, uh, Joanne, I don't know how we would work it out, but maybe you could send me some of those eggs sometime. I'm a big, I'm not sure how to do big it, egg I'll fan. Try, Frank. All right. Thank you. That's all we can ask. All right. Uh, well, I'm rooting for you now, big time, because I love uh, I love farmers, especially in uh, Asbury or even Asbury Park. I'm not sure if Asbury Park has a lot of farms on the beach, but maybe they do. All right. Um, are you familiar with the game, Joanne? I am. Okay, great. So the timer will begin after I ask you the first question. These questions are pretty easy, so I, you should win. You should okay. get this. All right. What is a common – just don't get nervous. That's the key. That's the key. Yesterday, the guy knew it, and he, he got screwed up, okay? Um, what is a common nickname for Robert? Bob. Name a newspaper in New York. The New York Times. What social media company did Elon Musk just purchase? Twitter. Who was the star of the motion picture Rocky? Uh, Stallone. In baseball, what is a home run with the bases loaded called? The Grand Slam. What state is known as the Bluegrass State? Kentucky. What band was Freddie Mercury the lead singer of? Uh, Queen. What city was John F. Kennedy assassinated in? Dallas. Who named the Pacific Ocean? Oh, no, I'm sorry. The Pacific Ocean, good guess, though, was named by Magellan, Ferdinand Magellan. But you did great. You got uh, eight questions right, which is more than we've had in quite some time, which, under the Katsimatidis rule, entitles you to $100. Well, okay. 
So congratulations. Thanks a lot, Frank. I had a great time. Well, yeah, so did uh, so did I. Congratulations on $100. Hopefully you can use a portion of that to uh, find some special packaging to send me some eggs. Give Philippe your number. That's not bad. Okay. Uh, all right. She got uh, eight correct, lost on number nine. Who named the Pacific Ocean was Ferdinand Magellan. But she did well. She did well. Well, so it's nice. What was the last question? Um, all right. Well, see, if I give you 10, then I'm going to have to come up with 10 new questions well, for tomorrow. It's only one You're question. right. You're right. Okay. And I would have gotten Magellan, by the way. You would have. I said Magellan. I, I would have gotten it, too. Total um, guess, though. I, we, yeah, exactly. I, I had to look it up, um, but I guessed correctly when I when I looked up question, this question. All right. The question number 10 was, which monarch officially made Valentine's Day a holiday in 1537? Oh, I had no idea. Well, t- if you were to take a guess. I don't even know anything about the monarchs. I know nothing about any of that. All right. Well, the the so answer no was, and you got to appreciate the irony of this question, was Henry VIII. Henry VIII made I Valentine's Day. I have no idea. Well, because you know he had a troubled relationship right. with uh, with his wife. Hey, um, I did not. It was such a beautiful day yesterday. So I went for a walk with my wife and my son, and. We got back and we said, all right, you know, maybe we can maybe we can put him down for a nap. Maybe if we play our cards right, he'll even decide to stay asleep. It's around seven o'clock, quarter seven, seven o'clock. I said, all right, well, that's nice. It's such a beautiful day. Why don't we stay out here? That is my son, Carmine. Right? Yeah, there's a more recent sound of him talking and crying a little bit. But um. So I said, why don't we stay out on the porch a little bit? We'll, we'll each have half a glass of wine, and I'll be able to smoke this cigar. And I was so frustrated with my Bank of America experience that I, I treated myself to a, a cigar, which was pretty good. It was perfect cigar weather yesterday. So I go out there on the porch smoking my cigar. My wife joins me. We're talking about our day. And um, oh, what? And – she said, oh, you know, it's 7, 7.15, we're missing Jeopardy. Because usually we watch Jeopardy every night at 7. And I said, well, we can go in and watch it. And she said, eh, we're out here. It's so nice. It's, it's already half over already. Well, maybe we'll just skip it today. The big question when you watch Jeopardy now, when you watch Jeopardy now, it's almost, it's, I wasn't around then. I wasn't a baseball fan then. But I picture it being like when Joe DiMaggio was in the midst of his 56-game hitting streak, where wherever you went, especially in New York, you, you didn't have to say what you were talking about. All you had to do was go into a store, go into a business, go into a hotel, go anywhere, and say, did he get one yesterday? And everyone knew you were talking about Joe DiMaggio and did he get a hit yesterday? And that's almost how it is with Jeopardy! Because Matea Roach, this 23-year-old phenom who NBC News describes as a lesbian tutor, um, who is a – I'm rooting for her every day. I think she's got a great attitude. I think – I love the way she plays. I love – you know, she seems friendly she, with the other contestants. She doesn't seem like she's got a chip on her shoulder. She doesn't seem – I hate to put it this way. She doesn't seem weird like James Holtzauer or, or maybe even Madame Modio. Again, nothing against them, but you could tell they're – they're not the kind of people that would be good social company. Matea Roach is. So, spoiler alert, 
she won again yesterday. Her 21st straight victory. She's now rapidly approaching Ken Jennings territory. She's, I mean, she's, this is one of the longest streaks of all time. And I would venture to guess it's the longest streak by far for someone of her age. And whenever I watch Jeopardy with Carmine now, I'm always in, uh, t- telling him, you know, you, this is why you really want to maintain your love of learning and maintaining your curiosity. And, and you, this is why you want to work so hard in school and read everything you can and study as much as you can about as many different subjects. Maybe you could do this at 23 years old and, and win four or $500,000 on Jeopardy. She's now on to $506,584. That's her cumulative 21 day total. Now, Yesterday's Jeopardy was was it yesterday? What's today? Today's Thursday. Maybe it's Tuesday. Tuesday's Jeopardy is very controversial because so now she yeah so Tuesday's Jeopardy was very controversial because they think the fans the critics of this think that it might be fixed now. Because Matea Roach is so good for ratings and she's such a fan favorite. They think this could be fixed. So dozens of fans have been fuming over what they claim was a fishy clue that they felt catered to Matea Roach, who then went on to win her 21st game. Um, So, yeah, I guess it was Tuesday. Did I miss this on Tuesday? I guess maybe I did miss it. So. Matea Roach was tearing through her 21st consecutive game of Jeopardy. She's now the fifth longest running contestant in Jeopardy history. But fans are not happy. They are upset about something that happened. Final Jeopardy, just so you understand, it gives each player 30 seconds to answer and choose their wager. This is the most important round in the game, and it was about... Canada. She's Canadian. Um, Let's hear what happened. Now, as we come to our Canadian champion, I should point out, (laughs) the final Jeopardy clues are written weeks or months in advance, and we never know when they're going to land. But I have to think, Matea might know some of the lyrics to O Canada. What was her response? O Canada, yes. Was it a big wager? $4,999, $29,599 today, and a 21-day total of $506,584. Now, Matea is Canadian. She got it right, as did another person that was playing. But with $27,000 total, she won the game. So now fans believe that because they picked a Canadian category for Final Jeopardy, that they fixed this in her favor. I don't think so. I think that since the quiz show uh, scandal of the 50s, they're so careful with this stuff. I don't think they did. But I'm, I might be in the minority. All over Twitter, which is now owned by Elon Musk, as uh, Joanne and Asbury, not Asbury Park, pointed out. One Twitter user said, Jeopardy is fixed. Now, no proof of it. Another person on Twitter writes, seriously, Jeopardy, oh, Canada? Another person writes, it's not a coincidence the Jeopardy final question is about the Canadian anthem when the contestant is Canadian. Hashtag sus, 
hashtag fishy. They gave her an easy Final Jeopardy question. It was about Canada. Figures, they put a Final Jeopardy about O Canada with a Canadian contestant. Um, blanks more rigged than the hockey playoffs. Another person writes that either way, Ken's monologue openings regularly uh, seem about her advantage. So tell me, do you think there's any truth to this? I don't. I don't. 800-848-9222. Amy Schneider, who was the previous big winner, she had a 40-game winning streak. So right now, Matea Roach, Roach is at a... For at a 21 game winning streak, right? So it's going to be interesting to see where we go from here. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where, I don't know how long she can last for. She seems unbeatable. And I don't think for a second that this is fixed. What do you think? 800 848 WABC. That's 800 848 Now, uh, coming up on the Bernie and Sid show, they're kick- kicking off. Cinco de Mayo here at the radio station, you know, for when we had Russian New Year, they had um, vodka in the freezer, along with all sorts of warning signs about not drinking it. So far, I haven't seen any tequila on the premises yet. I'm hoping that by the time I saunter in here at 1 a.m., that there will be uh, a little bit of tequila here at some point. After all, all it is Cinco de Mayo. Can't have Cinco de Mayo without tequila, am I right? So... Let me tell you what's coming up on the special Cinco de Mayo edition of the Bernie and Sid show. You're going to get to hear our owner, John Katsimatidis, kick things off at 7.05. Judge that uh, proud Mexican-American, Judge Andrew Napolitano, will be on the show at uh, 7.25. Uh, Another proud Mexican-American, Bill O'Reilly, on at 8.40. And then at 9.05, you're going to get to hear... Uh, chef Fernando Deso, who's the executive chef at uh, at Goya Foods. So there you have it. Um, so that should be an action-packed edition of the Bernie and Sid Show. But I was listening to that promo for the 5 a.m. early news hour with Deb Valentine. And Deb's here. She does a great job. But I'm listening to that promo where it says there's going to be an exclusive interview. I said, oh, that's interesting. With Bob Menendez, which we now know, thanks to Joanne and Asbury, not Asbury Park, is a nickname for Robert. And then I hear that the interview is going to be done by Frank Diaz. Now, Frank Diaz is a valuable contributor to our news team. But I can't help but think, after the incredible success that Deb Valentine had interviewing Chris Christie, that that really should have been her. You know, I mean, it's kind of her show now. And that she should have been the person interviewing Bob Menendez. Why is it Frank Diaz? Hmm. Was Bob Menendez too intimidated to go on air with uh, Deb Valentine? Was he afraid of the tough questions that Deb Valentine might ask? Or did Frank Diaz kind of snag this interview for himself? rather than allow it to be properly administered by the normal anchor of the show. One wonders if there's some behind-the-scenes drama going on in that 5 a.m. hour early news. I, You know, I, I don't see Frank Diaz here lately. So, who knows? You have any insight into this, Matt, uh, Matt Place? I do not. Interesting. I do not. So you claim. 
848 WABC. Mikey in Brooklyn, is Jeopardy fixed? You know, Frankie, good morning to you. And I just want to say, show is great as always. But uh, the, the Jeopardy thing, they can't afford to have that. that that's, that's ridiculous. That cannot be fixed. So you don't think they picked a, a, a category that she was intentionally? That... No, that's that. It's it's a coincidence. It's got to be a coincidence. No, that you know, the Jeopardy is one of the biggest programs on TV. I mean, it's what it's like. It's got such a, a long history. I don't think they're going to mess around with that. I know. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, do too, Mikey, for the same reasons. Uh, but it did. It does seem a little odd. Look, she is Canadian. But you know what? You know why I don't buy it, the criticism from the Twitter people because she's killing it in every category. She knows more about American history than all the Americans do. So it's not as if she <laughs> needs an advantage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Oh, Frankie, before I before we uh, get cut off. I just wanted to mention that there's crackling in the in the uh, in in the there's breaks, like when you talk, yeah, well, or whatever. When I'm on the phone with you, or when you no, listen? No, 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 no. Uh, just on the show itself, on the whole thing, on the whole coming through on the air. Really, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, we'll let... little crackles, so it's like little. Wait, do, do you hear it when I'm speaking, or just when there are callers on? No, I hear it like I guess when it's videotape. Yeah, I mean videotape. I mean, well, it is videotape, right? I, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the thing is, uh, well, is I like mean, it does crackles. matter if we want to fix the problem. So yeah. uh, you don't hear you hear it when I'm speaking, not when callers are speaking. No, because we're live now, I guess. And 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 what is it? A, a fourteen second. Well, I, I know, but because I hear it when callers are speaking. Yeah, I just heard it just now. Yeah, just right. got it. See, that's yeah. when I hear it, when callers are on, not when I'm yeah. speaking. And, you know, I've asked for our engineering folks to uh, try and investigate this, and apparently they're working on it. Uh, well, I so. think they ought to get Donald Duck on the <laughs> I, th- I think that one's lost on me, Mikey, but I will take it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, uh, you know, I've been asking about – I have noticed that issue with the phone, so hopefully we can figure that out. So we'll see. Al is in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Al, you have a thought not on the Jeopardy controversy, but on the Frank Diaz controversy. Well, I was just thinking, you know, Diaz Menendez, it's Cinco de Mayo. Interesting. Interesting. So you think (laughs) this is, well, first of all, Bob is, Bob Menendez is Cuban, not Mexican. But you think this is his way of showing a little Hispanic solidarity with Frank Diaz. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's yeah. an interesting theory. Oh, uh, Frank, also, the other day you talked about karaoke and what you and your wife were trying to do with uh, Jackson. Jackson. Right. You know that Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra did that, too. I do. It's a great uh, – I love that. That is actually on one of my um, – favorite nancy sinatra albums um yeah uh, it's a great uh it's a great album and uh both she and lee hazelwood sound great on it uh the album yeah. uh i'm trying to remember the name of the album uh but um, I, i'll look it up I'm not sure. but yeah. it's a it's a but, great uh, album. yeah when you played uh, johnny cash and his wife doing it i thought i know nancy sinatra did it yeah, yeah. And so anyhow, that was just the other thing I was going to say. Yep. No, she she didn't. She did indeed. Thank you very much there. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, for people wondering, so not only did Matea win on uh, May 3rd, she won yesterday as well. So she's killing it. She is absolutely 
killing it. Um, you know, the album might have been How Does That Grab You? Mm-mm-mm. No, that wasn't it. Okay, I'll find that out before we leave. Ivan or Yvonne is in Woodhaven. Hello, Yvonne. How you doing? I just heard a, a bell. Anyway, on Jeopardy, I think that while the uh, contest with the human against the computer, I wouldn't say it was fixed. The computer had unfair advantage because the computer is just faster than the human and always has the choice instantaneously of any question that's presented. Well, right? I know, but there was no computer playing yesterday. No, 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 I know. I know. I'm just I'm just talking about those computer human uh, matches. Okay. Well, that's fair. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, so the album was Boots, and you can hear that they have that great version of um of Jackson that's on there along with uh well, maybe not actually. Um there's Day Tripper, Boots are made for walking. Maybe it was a compilation album or something. I don't know. I can't find the album. All right. Um 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard for 15 seconds. Coming up at 5 a.m., it is Cinco de Mayo, so Bob Menendez is showing ethnic solidarity with Frank Diaz. That's something to look forward to. And then from 6 to 10, you got uh, Bernie and Sid. They have on Bill O'Reilly, John Katsimatidis, Judge Andrew Napolitano, and the chef from Goya. So it should be uh, five action-packed hours after I leave the airwaves. And I'll be back at 1 a.m. with uh, Ask Frank Anything. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 15 Seconds of Fame, straight ahead. My thanks to Stevie G for one of our two theme songs. This uh, this song is available on iTunes or anywhere else. Search Stevie G. It should come up there. All right. Uh, time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. If you have a comment for 15 seconds, now's the time. 1-800-848-WABC. It's 1-800-848-9222. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Leah in New Jersey. Yes, I'm very surprised that you didn't mention that today, the fifth ER on the Hebrew calendar, is the 74th anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel. We talked about that in the first hour. Mike in New Jersey. Morning, Frank. Frank, women have a choice. Mostly use birth control or don't. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Victor in Manhattan. 
Uh, Frank, I don't think your callers realize that they're calling from so far east of the Rockies that they're actually west of the Rockies. Jeremiah in Queens. I can't wait when the Russians beat the hell out of this government, beat the hell out of this place. Janice in Wayne. Yes. Hello, Frank. I think I was just listening to you talking about your album with Lee Hazelwood and uh, Nancy Sinatra. Right. The one that had Jackson on it. Yes. I think you might be referring to Moving with Nancy. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. Anthony in Edison. Uh, Yes. Hello. Uh, I'm just waiting for the day that we can get rid of this. Lion, rotten, red-headed, evil, demonic, Gen Saki, the propagandist for this illegitimate, horrible administration. There's got to be a better day coming. It's gonna- All right. On that note, we're going to have to end it there on that high note. Stay tuned for the WABC News, early news with Jeff Valentine. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno, good day.